Welcome to Shelved by Genre, a show about types of literature and the worlds they imagine. This season, we're reading Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, and this episode is about chapters 1 through 12 of Sword of the Lictor. For a list of content warnings, please check the episode description. I am Cameron, and with me in my cliffside hut are Michael and Austin. I need you to help my my little Michael. My little Michael's <laughs> face looks like a skull. <laughs> Uh, ums, ums, please. No, I'm looking through this here peephole here. My little I'm Michael suffers real... so badly, and my father is away now, so today would be the perfect time to come help my little Michael. I'm looking through this peephole, and I'm seeing, like, everything in the room. This is the most detailed image I've ever gotten through a peephole. Well, I've never I been able see to see because my eyes, are, my eyes are all messed up also, but that that's nothing next to my little Michael... Um, who is barely a person, mostly a corpse now. Have you, has anyone talked to you about salves or perhaps antibiotics? What are those? I live oh, high no. up on the, on the hills of Wait this city. I look down on them and I can't see anything except. I know what to do. I've got it here in my pocket. It's money. Oh. <laughs> Yay. That's what you, that's what Yay. you like. It's money. I'm money. healed. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> it's eating food. <laughs> it's being healthy. I'm gonna walk down to the hospital now, the Lazarette. I, I feel like I'm back at Epcot. <laughs> <laughs> With money, you can buy goods like food and services. Yay! Uh, uh, I feel like in in on Earth. You know, the thing, uh, you, you know, it, it often comes around this kind of discourse around like uh, a McDouble is like the best calories to food ratio you can get. You know, you know that like yeah. discourse that appears uh -huh. every now and uh -huh. again. It's like, dang, people are really up against it because like that's the reality. Yeah, it's, yeah, you know, yeah. That, that's got to be happening on Earth too, right? Oh, yeah. On Earth. Yeah. With you. Yeah. yeah. Earth. Earth. <laughs> like there, there has to be an elaborate system of like, well... I don't know what to tell you. There's just like uh, the dew bulbs are incredibly efficient. Now they do, uh, you know, uh, uh, fill you full of of uh, planetary sugars. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. That right. make you ripe for harvesting. <laughs> for the cacogens. In, in the, yeah. in, right. But, you know, bang for your buck. Can't complain. Can't complain. That's what the lower classes of Earth, that's what they have going on. Smash McDouble falls out of Severian sabotage. <laughs> We do get a lot of uh, new sociological positioning happening here in this mm -hmm. new book uh, mm -hmm. as we learn what's going on in, in this town that Severian's been sent to. So mm -hmm. I guess it's kind of like our Thrax. second. Yeah, Thrax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's it's a different type of city mm -hmm. for Severian. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, so we read the first bit of uh, – uh, sword of the lictor um and th th i think this book really like changes gears in a bunch of different ways mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is the most traditional fantasy we've been in a minute like i know we talked about fantasy village you know at uh in the opening of claw but this doesn't even have the weird thing of like and hey, we're going to learn about how they kill people here you know and this in this zany neo medieval thing with all these like laser gun wielding uh, troops that are coming through. There's not even that here. It's like, hey, we're here, and there's a local lord, 
and mm-hmm. he he uh, you know rules this medieval village, medieval mm-hmm. city, I guess. And here's all the medieval shit he does. And also, there's a fire breathing dragon running around, but don't mm-hmm. don't worry about that yet. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It just I I had not really I knew that there was going to be a gear shift because I've read these books before, but I was not prepared for like the in this read through how much the foot is taken off the gas on big sci-fi concept stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, there's like a solidity to everything, right? Like Severian essentially joins the administrative state for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a there is another genre thing that's I, I that feels like it's being played with here for me, um, uh, which I guess we, we can get into a little bit as we get into it. But like some of this early stuff reminds me of um, kind of hard boiled detective novels um mm-hmm. uh the way that severian talks about the city um mm-hmm. especially as he you know he's he moves through it kind of twice and there's these moments where he connects to it and then try kind of does the like you know uh let's let's call it like naive sociology <laughs> um of trying to talk through what the different people are and how they come together and he does the classic they say that that the savages are uncivilized, but aren't we actually the, the more uncivilized? And so mm-hmm. the the autochthons, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the autochthons, or the yeah, the autochthons, however you want to say. I that. don't know how you say it. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a real word, sort yeah. of. You know, um, it's like <laughs> it's like uh, what the ancient, what, what in the classical era, what you would refer to as like the locals, the native people, people who are who are mm-hmm. who are indigenous to a to a region, would be called mm-hmm. autochthons. Um, uh, but I don't know if you pronounce the C or not, because thonic is one of those words, isn't it? You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whether it's cathonic or thonic. I'm going to listen. I'm listening to Merriam-Webster Dictionary. All right, okay? tell me. Otokthon. Otokthon. Okay. Otokthon. Um, but when he's talking about that stuff, when he's talking about like that, and then when he's describing the city, there's a lot of like Dashiell Hammett protagonist talking about Los Angeles. You know what I mean? There's a lot of mm-hmm. the like describing the way the hills work. And then he goes to a fancy party and flirts with a woman who's about to get into deep trouble, right? Uh-huh. And I don't know that this is intentional from Wolf, but I kept getting these flashes of it. I'll call out points mm-hmm. when I when it when it pops up in my notes. Yeah. Well, it's very also Le Guin too. Sure. Right? The, yes. the kind yes. of view somehow both a uh first person perspective but also a view from 40,000 feet, right? Where it's like everything in the society, I'm thinking about, you know, the opening of the left hand of darkness when uh, Jin Lee Ai is watching the keystone be put into the bridge and it has to have blood on it and all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And and you get this like immediate, from seeing that one thing, Jin Lee Ai gives us this like zoomed out, whoa, here's all of, you know, the the people of Carhide and the different things they wear and how they do it and where they live in the city and all that kind of stuff. So it's very much this kind of thing within this branch of science fiction, I, I think is, you know, um, in conversation. I think this whole maneuver that you're pointing out is in conversation with the popular literature of yeah. 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and uh, this is like Wolf's version of it, which is notable because Wolf's version of it is very sci-fi too, mm-hmm. right? Like when Ursula Le Guin does this, it's to give you a shape of the people and their character and why they might act the way they do, right? There's this kind of, like you said, naive sociology about it. For Gene Wolfe, it's also being like, hey, I've told you all this stuff and you better, you better remember the shape of this river 
and the uh, the tunnel and the mm-hmm. the sewer grate because that's coming back, buddy. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? There's there's a way that like <laughs> it feels very um, kind of like just drawing you a picture, but later on, all this is going to get kind of funneled into a very plot driven thing that occurs. Yes. Sorry, I'm thinking about the plot driven thing and about how it. I'm Severian's a fucking goofball, dude. <laughs> he's goofball. <laughs> you yeah. say? He's like he's seventeen. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah, he's, I do. he's a goofball who doesn't know anything. Still, yeah. This is this he's is. just been backstage at a bunch of concerts. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yep. He's he's like <laughs> he's a seventeen year old who went on the road and went backstage at a bunch of concerts. Uh, he's kind of like weirdly enough, Forrest Gumped his way through the yeah, world so far, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. He just happens yes. to be at these important things. He has main um, character syndrome, and unfortunately, it seems like he might be the main character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He is the only appropriate uh, uh, syndromed uh, main character, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, Dorcas is there, and she's like, "Hey, Severian, I'm in immense emo- emotional distress." And he's like, "Have you tried going for a walk?" Yeah. <laughs> Have you tr- have you tried uh, have you tried commanding sixteen hundred prisoners? <laughs> really pick you up in the morning. Should I read the summary, babe? We all get yeah. sad. Just uh, <laughs> haven't you taken in the city? Go take in the city, babe. <laughs> God, the th- it is s- such a funny thing to me. Before I read the summary, it is such a funny thing to me that he's like, go take in the city, whatever. And then he climbs to the tallest point on the city uh-huh. and is just looking around and where's Waldo's her from uh-huh. like 30, <laughs> yes. you know, I don't know. Yeah, literally like 10,000 feet, right? Yep. Like yeah. is able to be like, uh-oh, there's the iconic striped hat of Dorcas <laughs> all the way over there at the docks. She's crying. That's very funny to me. I love uh, it. It's the most like Gene Wolfe ass thing. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Summary. Here's the summary. This is just me talking about what happened. This is actually weirdly enough much shorter than the other summary that I've read. The book opens with Dorcas and Severian discussing Severian's reputation in Thrax, the city of windowless rooms, named so because many of its houses are carved directly into a massive cliff face. The people call him a butcher, and he guards 1,600 chained men in a prison called the Vincula, which now operates in an equivalent position, and he now operates in an equivalent position to Master Gerlos. Dorcas is upset with how Severian has changed and his responsibilities for keeping these prisoners in terrible conditions deep in a cave prison. He ignores her. They go to sleep. The next day, Dorcas leaves, and Severian later finds her unwilling to speak to him. He goes off on a long treatise about why torture is cool. He then leaves Dorcas in an inn. He sees a young boy with an infected eye and his dying sister and is afraid to use the claw to help them because people are watching. There's some kind of bushel thing going on. Severian is invited to a social event by his boss, the Archon. He also learns that someone is killing people in the city by burning them, and the conversation makes it sound like the setup for a Spider-Man villain. He goes to the party. At the party, Severian meets a pelerine. She faints, and she's not really a pelerine, but instead is named Syriaca, and she's the wife of an armager. She says that she's seen Severian at court, and that she thinks he would be happy to kill and torture, especially women. She wants to hang out with him, and she tells him he's very attractive, and then starts doing physiognomy on him. They talk about the library at Nessus, and Severian pities her because she is not younger than she really is. She tells Severian a long story about human history. Then they have sex. 
Then Severian threatens some women, and later the Archon appears and has him do something to Syriaca. Severian leaves the party and goes to the home of the sick girl from earlier. He uses the claw, and it heals her. She claims that he is wearing white, despite his foolage and cloak. And when he leaves, he begins to resent his torturer's clothing. Then he gets attacked by a fire-breathing lizard flower. It chases him into a hovel that overlooks the city, and then it falls through the floorboards down the cliff face of Thrax, to its death. He returns to Dorcas. She tells him that she has been throwing up lead weights. Severian considers that she might be a madwoman. She tells him about a chair she saw earlier that day that had been looted from Nessus and how she knew its carvings and grain. She comes to the conclusion that she was dead in the water of the botanical gardens and resurrected by the claw. She tells Severian that she believes the claw is a device of the conciliators that has the same power over time that Father Inire's mirrors have over space. Dorcas decides to leave and find out who she was in Nessus. Severian reveals that he is on the run and now needs to flee north. He did not do anything to Syriaca before, but instead let her go free, and so ruined his position in Thrax. It is unclear whether this mercy came from Severian or Thecla. Syriaca told him where the Pelerines were and also implies that the Autarch is a servant of Cacogens. Dorcas leaves for the south, and Severian flees to the north through the mountains. And that's all we read. There it is. Mm-hmm. That's it. Just some easy stuff. I, what do you think about, uh, I mean, there's like a million things to talk about, especially <laughs> that story that Syriaca tells. My, oh my, my, my subtle belief is that we're going to spend 45 minutes talking about that because it's one of the, the coolest things that are, that are in these books so far. But I'm not going to ask you about that. What do you all think about this uh, decision to make Dorcas leave and, and Dorcas kind of being her own main character for, for a minute? I'm happy about it because it's it it uh I mean I'm happy about it in the sense that like it's fun when the character catches up with the reader sometimes mm-hmm. and so like, we've known this about Dorcas or we had we've had this feeling about Dorcas let's say that this is true that that Dorcas mm-hmm. was the shop owner that uh the uh, the old guy in the botanical gardens uh, talked about when he was looking for his, his wife that that he that mm-hmm. was here in the in the in the botanical gardens um uh and it's like oh yeah good I'm glad she found it out it's funny that she found it out because she saw an old chair that she liked. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a great detail. And you get like the detail of the, the area south of, of Nessus or to the, the, the kind of big empty, the sprawling uh, like ruins of old Nessus or whatever to the south um, is great. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm also like sometimes a character you don't know that the writer knows what to do with gets to leave. And not continue to be written poorly, <laughs> and that's kind of nice, you know. <laughs> I, you know, I it is disappointing to me a little bit that it that she's so clear about the chair, you know, that it has carving. She notices the grain of the wood because the book of the new sun does offer up a really enticing universe where she like gets to see her favorite gamer chair. And she's like, oh, the cushion. Uh, the, you know, you the, think if she'd pleated. be more vague, it could have been a secret yeah. lab. Like, right, right. You know. right. Yeah. It could, oh, my secret lab. Uh, it, you know, it could have been. Uh, and that would be beautiful in some oh, ways. But right. it, it is a, a, a nice, you know, carved chair. Yeah. M- Michael, what do you think about this move? Uh, I mean, I was basically going to say what Austin said, uh, which is, you know, I read a. Um, a review from when the first book was published from Shadow. Mm-hmm. 
And the reviewer there who was, I think, one of the people like in like the library journals who didn't really like it and said that the title was awful. There was like this offhand description of the plot where it's like Dorcas, who is obviously someone who just got like resurrected from this lake that he falls into. Right. Even the (laughs) the reviewer had like no time for the mystery. It was just like, this is obviously what's going on. Uh, So here we are on the other side of, uh, of another book entirely. And yeah, there, I mean, and and Dorcas has had kind of this uh, arc that we haven't talked about too much where she's talked about, you know, having nightmares and dreams where she goes into places and uh, people are apprehending her as an unclean spirit of some kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she, she has been like, you know, low key aware of something or she suspected that something is wrong with her in some way. And here is kind of that that moment of realization that comes through, uh, as you say, the the chair, which is uh, I mean, the, the whole thing about Nessus having sprawling ruins south of it that are just uh, like places that have been abandoned. Right. Like that. Uh, there is this uh, really fascinating a way of thinking about like the city constantly marching north. And so Dorcas is old enough to have lived in a part of the city that is now dead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I just think that's really cool. Like, you know, good payoff to, I think we got details about the ruins south of Nessus, like way, way back, maybe in the first book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is a, I I like the kind of lead up to that too, which is that uh, it, it's some real material history in a way that Gene Wolfe doesn't seem to normally care about. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we, we got a little bit of that in the last book of the the mining, big quotation marks, right? That happens in Saltus where they're mm-hmm. just like, mm-hmm. you know, digging stuff out or like rooting through the ruins of whatever the hell, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, here we're getting that too, right? Where the people who make chairs, big quotation marks, right? They just go to Nessus and loot the chairs mm-hmm. because the demand for chairs is so, for furniture, he says, in, in Thrax is so high and the ability to produce it is so low that it is a full business just to, you know, take a boat, go go to Nessus, fill it up with chairs, drive it back to Thrax, you're good to go. You know, that's a business. Well, and he specifically has identified the buyers of these chairs as autochthons who want to adopt the like Nessus culture, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is which is interesting. We're going to have a lot to say probably about again the the mm-hmm. sociological descriptions of the peoples here. Um, but yeah, still on Dorcas, yeah, still on Dorcas for a second. There are two other things I yeah. think um, that I think one is the, you know the reviewer that Michael just talked about is is right that that like it, you you just you kind of just I don't know we knew pretty quickly like okay I get it you're in the you're in the river of dead people and then someone came up out from the river probably was mm-hmm. a dead person probably a dead person whose name was is an extension of the diminutive that we just heard from that other guy say um, right got it I'm looking for Kaz right hmm, it's <laughs> interesting I found this uh, uh, nearly mute traumatized woman named Dorcas hmm, exactly so. Uh, right. So, yes, but I do think that given what happens in this reading where we learn about Vivamancy um, and we learn about this yeah. idea and, and we learn about this idea that what the claw does is move you to another point in time um, and you and you start to hear more about about the conciliator, more about what's it, you know, when you start to meld those things together, the idea of resurrection means something a little different. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important, you know, development in the way we think of it. And the other thing, of course, I think structurally, this is not in conversation with that reviewer. This is just the other thing that I think about with this is 
in the last in the last book to the degree that Dorcas was in the, the kind of back half of it and then and then through the first half of this book one of the roles that she plays and I mean she plays this I guess throughout the entire first book where that she's in it too is the like the good angel on Severian's shoulder saying mm-hmm. you could be a different person saying yeah. you're not as bad as people say you are saying you are not death etc and so, like, that has to come to a resolution here because Severian has made a decision to to be a better person, right? Or to, like, not— At least to be somebody to be, else. Yeah, I mean, not to be a better— uh, I don't know. I think that there is a—I think that there is a youthful decision being made here that is, like, and I'm going to—I have the claw, and I can help—I can help those kids, and I'm going to go do mm-hmm. it because I feel yeah. bad about it. There's a—I'm tangling with guilt here. Yeah. And I, yes. I when I say like to be a better person, I I truly mean that in the way that a 17-year-old might say that about themselves. You yeah. know, they, I mean he's going to his plan is to go and become a soldier. Right. I'm gonna, you, know, yeah. you know what I mean, right? Yes. Like that that's yes. the heroic that he's going to go enlist. You know, uh, Gene Wolfe is someone who was drafted into the Korean War, right? right? Like right. and is an avowed fan of uh because I read through the Castle of the Otter, and I think Michael, you did as well. So yeah, we'll have some stuff to talk about at the end of this episode. But uh, yeah, the Red Badge of Courage is showing up all the time for right. him. Yeah, sure, right? as a kind sure. of structuring story for this. So so yeah, better person here. So like, uh, yeah, yeah, Dorcas is extremely the like you know um, the the modern novel wife who says, "Honey, your work is killing you." In the first mm-hmm. half of this section of the reading, and she can't yeah. be that after. Gene has decided Severian is going to go do this other thing. Uh, and so she has to get out of the, the story. He has to get her out of the story because she can't serve that role anymore. Well, right. I mean, can I can I like give you the the double down here in some please, weird ways? Please. Your wife can't go to war. Right. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? That that even if she cuts her hair. Even if you cut your hair to to a, a boyish length, right. I think is the, the yes. thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the in 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 the imaginary here, right? Yep. In, in like yep. the Gene Wolf framework, your wife can't go to war. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. If you do, if you do a war story, women can't come along. Now we're gonna we are going to war at some point. You know, uh, light spoilies. <laughs> we're headed north. I, that's <laughs> perhaps not shocking. Uh, but uh, but we're heading that way, and. Um, the uh, we are going to see lots of women, so that's not like a thing that you know holds up. But I think that that's part of the mechanism here mm-hmm. is that you know she gets to have her own story, and you're exactly right. We we are closing the door on or you know finishing off that arc. I guess mm-hmm. this is also a place. This is a piece of this, and we don't have to talk about the other half of it just yet. But there are two things meeting here, which is that at the beginning, these first twelve chapters of sort of the Lictor. Gene Wolfe is being very careful about uh, kind of revealing the trick if you haven't figured it out yet. And by by which I mean revealing very clearly that Severian is uh, uh, lacks the capacity sometimes to recognize things that are right in front of him, uh-huh. right? So so you're exactly right. You know, when you said earlier, Austin, the uh, it's fun when the character catches up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, notably, the character who never caught up to any of this until it was told is Severian, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, Dorcas is catching up with us. Severian seems to not be aware of this at all still uh, and doesn't really believe it, right? right. You know, uh, yeah. at least to, to begin with. Which is well, one of the things that, even... Go ahead, Michael. Oh, I was going to say, there's a question even of, 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 like, how actively is he ignoring it? Because these yes. opening yeah. conversations with Dorcas is her, like, trying to, like, basically 
basically tee some stuff up to uh-huh. have a conversation with him. And she keep and he's like, he he'll respond, but he always responds in a way that like, you know, divots off in some other direction. So there are a couple of points where she's like, Severian, you didn't ask me about blah, blah, blah. Or like specifically, you know, the uh her like you didn't ask me why I was crying or what is what she what she saw in the water. Is that how she puts it? I don't know. Anyway, that's uh, the maybe. Yeah, yeah, that might be right. The point is like like she, it is made very clear in these opening conversations that she is like trying to aim towards something and he is either not seeing what she's aiming toward or he is seeing it and making the decision to like fork the conversation elsewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fair which, enough, Which babe. is asking. Oh, go, go ahead. Austin, that's sorry. all. Just, it's just like the boyfriend being like, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not actually going to have the conversation with you, but. You know, uh, yeah, you can have that feeling for sure. The, the, yeah, I, I mean that that is exactly the thing that's occurring, and I, it's I think very purposefully putting in front of us. We can see Severian doing this here. Where is Severian also doing this? It's also brought up in the conversation with Syriaca, where uh, she interprets based on the information that Severian's told her about his own life. She like misinterprets. Uh, part of his story right Mm -hmm. and he goes well you only think that because that's what you know and you don't have the whole story right and it literally is like Severian's looking at the audience right and being like Uh huh huh when you only have part of the information you don't you can't construct the whole story huh so the, the first part of this book is really I think invested in from a writerly perspective being like all right y'all Severian might not have told you the whole truth the whole time or might have been doing this to himself yeah. the whole time. I mean, in this section, he mentions again that the claw didn't heal Jolenta. And it's yeah. like, bro, you just got told how the claw works. Please right. put two and two together. Uh, n- notably, no Severian as the autarch here yeah. in this 12 chapters, sure. right? Sure. There's no time where he is like, and, and uh, as the watch continued, blah, 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 all mm-hmm. that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. We're not getting any of that. Um, and so it's all all the meta work going on here of like kind of wink, wink, nod, nod at the audience. It's all happening in conversations with other people where they are saying to Severian, hey, do you notice what's going on here, <laughs> you know, in these books? And, and Michael, that the thing that you were talking about, too, at the very beginning where Dorcas is teeing stuff up, that's another place where I noticed that happening. Um, uh, they're talking about the prison, the vincula. And she says, uh, it's a, Dorcas would not look at me. It's like a mass grave, she said. I could see her shoulders shake. It should be, I told her. The Archon could release them, but who could resurrect those they've killed? You've never lost anyone, have you? She did not reply. Ask the wives and mothers and the sisters of the men our prisoners have left rotting in the high country whether Abdesius should let them go. Only myself, Dorcas said and blew out the candle. Right, And so we are in the first two pages getting a, or maybe first two pages, first couple pages, uh, yeah, first two pages. Getting a conversation in which Severian is just continuing to monologue and talk, and it's not that she didn't reply. There's just a pause, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Because she is saying, "You've never, you know, you've never lost anyone, have you?" And she is responding, "Only myself." And in the text itself, Severian is not marking that as a reply. Um, and so it, it is so apparent to me uh, that, that you know, cloak coming off, mask off. Uh, Gene Wolfe is telling us a lot of stuff about Severian here. And maybe that's part of that transformation you were talking about too, Austin. Uh, wait, which one? Which transformation? From like, you know, making some decisions about himself, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. th- yes. this is also a different, if if we take the book as written by 
Autark Severian, mm-hmm. then uh, then this is also doing some transformational stuff too. Well, we also get a little more. Um, I mean, the one the one that sticks out is Thecla was shrieking now in some corner of my mind. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, it, yeah. It, it feels it's not being called out in some of the same ways. Um, that it was previously where like, you know, we would get a whole paragraph that was just about like, um, that we're, we're in Thecla's mind now where we are, you know, I'm, I'm telling uh-huh. you outright, oh, and these were Thecla's thoughts. It happens a couple of times in here, but it seems like it's, it, there's a way in which it feels as if Thecla is suffusing throughout Severian Thecla, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a little bit more in some of this stuff. Um, that I think is is I, I like the ambiguity of that here because it's not a hundred percent clear how deep that that blurring has happened. Um, mm-hmm. But it's but it is it is constant, right? Like he's constantly re- remembering one small detail or, or has a sense of familiarity with someone in a way that is actually feckless familiarity. And it's just like it's just background radiation now, right? Like, it's just always like that. It's not. It's not happening in big jumps, except for when she's screaming in his mind now. You know, well, the and it seems like you you know uh, when he decides not to kill Syriaca to kind of turn mm-hmm. his back on being the lictor, you know, and we can we'll talk about that, you know, like what the lictor actually is here. But it seems like that might be entirely Thecla, um, because you know he says that her finger he could feel her, he because he could not turn to look at her yeah. right because she's mm-hmm. in his brain yeah and he says but he can feel her something like her icy fingers on his brain yeah you know, there's yeah. a there's mm-hmm. a real evocative thing and in a general sense i think the like i was saying there's some some genre shifting going on at the beginning too right maybe it's just big city versus small town but i really do think that you know especially the thecla stuff there's a different approach to writing some of these things um and and again no autox severian kicking in right mm-hmm. like the the book is shifting in pretty significant ways and we talked about this last time in the last couple episodes right that holding in your mind you know gene wolf the master clocksmith who has written this perfectly lockstep set of four volumes that are all resonant with one another uh, I think remove some tools for thinking about how these things change over them. And, and actually, you know, want to have a small correction to something we talked about before, right? Or maybe I talked about before explicitly. Uh, that's, you know, about when he was writing them and how he had mm-hmm. to do it. So a red castle mm-hmm. of the otter. The the shtick here or, or the way it worked out is that before Wolf sold the first volume, all four volumes were in their second draft. Now, that does not mean that they are complete. Mm. They're just in their second draft. Um, and, you know, it really wasn't four volumes. It was supposed to be three, and then they split into four when they made the deal for the first book. If you, by chance, want to get Castle of the Otter and read about this, it's one of the last chapters in that. Castle of the Otter is most accessible these days by buying Gene Wolfe's Castle of Days, which is a, a book that has a short story collection and Castle of the Otter and another thing in it for some reason. It's a really weird omnibus volume. But... So uh, two drafts, uh, you know, uh, draft two of all of them ready to go. Um, and then every time and, and then he delivered them six months in between, six month intervals in between. So one one uh, goes in, it's ready to be published and he's tinkering on the next one, tinkering on the next one going up. I think he is for some of these, he's writing four drafts, five drafts, tinkering, tinkering, tinkering. It goes in for six months. He's tinkering, tinkering, tinkering with the next one and on down the line. 
What's weird about Castle of the Otter is that it comes out basically right around Sword of the Lictor because it is partially built out of articles that he is writing for magazines and then some um, bespoke essays. It's a really weird thing. So he he publishes his book about writing Book of the New Sun before Book of the New Sun is complete, you know, before it's out. So it's right. a really weird historical document in that way, too. But that's all to say, you know, one could have in your mind, oh, if everything's in the second draft, everything is all lined up and ready to go. Um, and I, you know, just I think paying attention to the way these things are shifting, I'm I'm unconvinced of that. I think that there, there are pretty radical maneuvers happening between each volume, and those maneuvers are important to pay attention to. And here's one additional thing, and Michael, you read this as well uh, in prep for this episode, so you can definitely, um, I think, concur here. Gene Wolfe is in love with good press. Yes. There, <laughs> a man has never been happier to get a good review. There is, in fact, an article in uh, Castle of the Otter that is just him quoting all of the good reviews that's all it is have you seen this austin no i've not touched castle the otter for fear of being spoiled in the rest of this novel yeah yeah uh weirdly enough not that because because it's coming out around this time right i'd assumed it came after which i guess is just my own fault for not looking into it yeah but i i would say wait till we're done if you want to look at it but uh the but yes, it is just a full article of every paragraph is a different review, a different positive review that someone wrote with like good pull quotes. Um, and so I funny. think that we should take that into account mm-hmm. when we think about what Gene Wolfe is, is leaning into. Mm-hmm. I have also done a little bit of preview research for for kind of end of the, the series here by reading some interviews with Wolfe from late in life particularly around uh, after the release of Long Sun and Short Sun. And I found out there uh, that he used the kind of big fan volumes that were going on the Earth listserv. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these fan books, Lexicon Earthus, all these things. He used those as reference volumes for those other books. Um, and so there's a way that the fan discourse about Wolf and like the fan appreciation of Wolf is f- being fed into the machine in a very explicit way uh, mm-hmm. to the point where he is publishing essays about his own good reviews. And now so listen, I, I think sometimes you forget the name of characters you wrote about six or seven years ago. And it's useful. Shout out to the people who run the Friends of the Table wikis because sometimes <laughs> yes. they remind me of things. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that you, know, like, I know, I you need that. Yes, You need yes, that, right? Yes. That's like helpful. That's the, one of the major benefits. But I, I think no, if you No, but read it's real. Gene you're, you're 100% right at the same time, right? Like, I, I, I mean, I can like get very specific about this, right? Which is that like sometimes I will not remember for Friends of the Table what we did with the character. And so I will look something up in a fan wiki and see something that I know is actually wrong because right. the person who wrote – the the reference you know page on this character I only listened to the first you know 40 episodes of the 50 episode series or or they misunderstood something that happened in in a, a bit of ambiguity um and i for whatever reason in certain cases will remember that ambiguity and then i'll go and check the transcript and like okay look this is what they misunderstood interesting but i'm certain there has been a time when 
I have read a misapprehension and then reapplied the misapprehension. You know, I don't do it. This is nothing I do like for every episode. I'm not like, okay, right. let me look up all the old characters. But I'm certain <laughs> that it's happened sometime in the last nine years of doing a weekly serialized fiction show, you know? Um, yeah. And, and so uh, I do under – and so – and that's with me not wanting to do it at all, ideally, right? This is me with like a fairly anti – that that style of uh, kind of the catalog, the sort of archive fever of the fandom who wants to like bring it all together and su- and summarize and uh, build, you know uh, bring it all down to something very consumable. Um, that is that is me with a with an opposition to that, like an oppositional posture. If Gene is leaning in, let me tell you, it could it could definitely go a different way. Yeah, and I think Gene, just to read him talk about it himself, right? He's leaning in from the day the first review of Shadow of the Torture comes out. And right, so right. For, for me, holding on to like bigger than the, the clockwork god, right? You know, mm-hmm. that Gene Wolfe is like a dude and he is a dude who likes a little bit of flattery, which is like fun. That's like a human yeah, thing. I'm extremely. not in any way critical It feels that, good. Right? Um, it feels great, but I think... I think that is helpful for understanding where these books go and how they shift and change is he has the pieces, but he's leaning into the things that people like, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that accounts for some of the, what I would call the major shift between shadow and claw and sword and citadel. Um, I think sword and citadel are different. Um, and, and I, I think you can account for that. Um, and part of the reason they're different is they were supposed to be one volume originally and they split it into two and they kind of beefed them up. Um, so, you know, there's some like basic stuff going on there, but I also think, you know, like as Michael, you know, as you say, right, like he is a human being writing in time, um, Mm -hmm. and that changes the shape of the thing. And I think that's fun to kind of note here. And I think goes against some of the impulse that we have around Gene Wolfe of, you know, the, the, the master craftsman, even though he is that right, but he's a master craftsman and he's a human being like some sort of Jesus figure. He (laughs) carpenter. uh, a carpenter. You can oh, put is that together? Is is Castle the Otter where the? And sorry, Michael. I know you have a thing, but is Castle the Otter yeah. where he does, he has that line about Jesus is a carpenter, but so is the <laughs> the guy who built the cross. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. And actually, the only thing we know that Jesus ever carpented was a whip. Was a whip. Yeah. Which like yeah. it fucking goes. Unfortunately, it's one of those quotes <laughs> that's like you know what? Jesus cooking. <laughs> yeah, he thought about it. He did. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Michael, you did have another thing on this, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, just bouncing off of what Cameron said, one of the other things that comes up in Otter that I think is relevant for thinking about, like, uh, the kind of performance of Wolf as an author and the kind of response he is hoping to receive. uh, And one of the ways that you kind of uh, uh, I'm trying to how to put this. One of the ways that you can receive a certain response is you build the stage for your audience to give you that response. Um, Yeah. Mm. Right. And so one of the things he says in Otter is he talks about uh, essentially what his hope was for Book of the New Sun, which is for it to be his own book of gold. And he explicitly goes back to 
uh, the chapter in Shadow where Severian talks with Ultan and Ultan talks about like, you know, some someone finds on the shelves in this library the Book of Gold, which, you know, elects them to be part of this order of uh, librarians or curators or whatever. Right. Um, that it become like this very special feeling toward this very special book that you read once and then you can never find again in Ultan's case. But Wolf says there that like, you know, if I, if I have written your book of gold, then that's fantastic. Which again, like that's awesome, right? Speaking as a writer, I would love it if I wrote someone's book of gold. Like that's a nice mm-hmm. idea. Um, and at the same time, uh, pointing back to the Homestuck show, uh, I am always also a little bit wary of any book that presents itself as being like, here is a pool in which you can swim forever. Like, yeah. not because that's necessarily bad, but it's like, well, do I want to swim forever in that pool? Right? Like, are there other things <laughs> I want to do with my life? Or what do I do by making this book the pool in which I swim forever? Well, the answer is, yeah, <laughs> some people do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of people do. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a good... Uh, a good impulse to have. Yeah. Talking about the difference in, in the way this feels compared to the, the first two, I do have to say, I came into this expecting, so I, we're still in the parts of the book that I've read before. And I came mm-hmm. into it remembering that the first time I read this, it dragged. Uh, I did mm-hmm. not enjoy this stuff in Thrax and the parts of this book that I really loved uh, uh, are coming in this next reading that we're going to do. I believe, yeah. I believe it. Same. I believe they are. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's the next reading. But, I very purposely constructed the next reading to have all that stuff in it. Yeah, it needs to have its own, it needs to be its own section. Um, yeah. And there's other stuff in that reading too that is wild. So we'll, we'll besides the thing I'm, you and I are thinking about. But coming back to it, I actually really, well, and also I should say, I read this in kind of two big sections. I read the first half of it just before a trip I just took. And then I read the second part of it, like from chapter three or four forward in the, the, on the return flight, basically. Um, and, uh, I, I really enjoyed some of the pros in this that in a way that I didn't the first time through. And I don't know if that is something stylistic that Wolf is chasing here. Um, mm-hmm. but the conversation, uh, at the party with, uh, Sira- uh, Syriaca, um, the conversation with, uh, between Dorcas and, and, uh, Severian, that has a very I, – I don't know what the genre mode he's in is. And, and I you know, again, maybe this is a little bit of the bourgeois novel happening. But there is something of the, like, two characters talking just past one another. Um, yeah. Everything has the little, you know, the little dramatic turn, the little the – little, um, you know, I think the specific can, thing – Can I give you the key here? Yeah, please, give me the I key. Think- I think, Michael, you, check me if you think this is wrong. I think this, it's Vanity Fair. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It is. Yes. It is. Right. Yes. Well, uh, like, and and so specifically the thing of like Severian comes back the changed man, but it's a second too late. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is totally a Vanity Fair thing. Right. Um, uh, I, I love it. Like it completely hits for me. It's aestheticized in exactly a way that I'm, I was like, I'm currently tuned to eat up. And I was not expecting that because the first time through, I, I felt that this was kind of a drag. Um, so, I, you know, happy about it. Happy, happy to have an easy read. Well, yeah, because we've just gone from like uh, the the spaceman robot <laughs> flying around and all the different <laughs> like, you know, Gene Wolfe's monster manual. And oh, we're still uh, okay. Now wait a second. 
We still got yeah. that, I know. But I'm saying it, it was like hot and heavy the whole time, yes. right? It was like yes. bang, 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 bang. Here are all the aliens that you could, might want to talk to, right? <laughs> right. Well, it's um, like this is this is the book where within the first couple of pages when Severian is talking about living and working in Thrax, we discover that actually a huge part of his training in the Citadel was dealing with paperwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? He's good like, at it. He's an administrator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, by the way, let me give a, 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 I guess also a correction here. I said a million years ago when he went to the cosplay panel, you know, the, the learning how to do cosplay, yeah. that it was Michael Swanwick. I was wrong. I told you at the time, I was like, I'm pretty sure this, you know, I, I'm not a hundred percent on this. It's Bob Tucker is who he went with just to, you know, get the accuracy out there. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, we, 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 do we want to talk Let's about these it. things in order? Sure. Yeah. Um, we talked about Dorcas. Um, <laughs> I put in my notes here that men faint too. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Severian makes sure to tell us that men faint. What do y'all think about uh, his job as the lictor of Thrax? Because that's the whole deal. The like, whole remember deal, back dude. two books ago? Yeah. Right? That we're like coming here to be the lictor and they <laughs> needed someone to come do that. He had no idea. What, he didn't tell us what that meant, right? And now well, we've you get learned a about false it. impression that maybe he also had. But like, you get the impression he's going from town to town on the way here, being an occasional executioner, and mm-hmm. there's and it's it's grimy, but the, but he makes his case early on about the value of that, and he you get to see him like take joy in putting on the best version of the you know splitting the difference the way we talked about it with the with the story of of to appease one side of the crowd by making them feel that it was brutal and appease the other side of the crowd by making them feel like it was clean and, and easy, you know, that, that stuff. Mm-hmm. And and we get to have a little bit of, a, of sympathy for him because we know he gets sick after he does it. And everything mm-hmm. feels like it's organized around these particular events and these particular crimes. The idea that like, oh, uh, this woman was, you know, either either poisoned her family or was manipulated uh, or was framed for poisoning her family or, you know, they got sick and she was blamed for it. Whatever. There's a very little uh, micro story here is happening about mm-hmm. this thing. And, and there's it's something kind of adventurous and it's not noble, but it is but it is um, particular. And that and that gives it a sort of nobility. And then it's sixteen hundred people in a long row and it's paperwork. And it's uh, their feces piling up until mm-hmm. until the the barbican is is or the the reservoir or whatever is almost overflowing, and so then you release the water, and then it cleans them, but it also almost drowns them. And it is slow, and it is the worst version of it. There is no dropping of the blade. There is no gleam of the metal. Um, there is no showmanship uh, upon the stage. It is. He's a prison warden of a prison that has been mismanaged for so long that even if he wanted to fix it, the things that he would be fixing would mostly be making things worse for the people there already. Uh, and that is a great pivot. Yeah. It, it's, the job sucks. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, the, that is the, the, the sum total of everything we get about it, right, is that it is just terrible awful drudgery and also terrible, awful drudgery with like, what is the output? Right? Like there, there's no justice being served. Right. right? This is what I mean. Right. Any of the fable that he could have told himself about what it was he did. I mean, he still tells that fable. We still, we still get that bit, but it's very clear to the reader that he is like a warden of cruelty. You know, like he, he, the thing that he is serving is just, injustice very clearly to so many people 
um, in a way that's not dramatic or fun. You know, like you right. can get excited about the drop of the blade. There's nothing to get excited about in the way in the mechanisms of his role as Lictor. Well, it, and the the part of it too is that the the other half of the job is just standing behind his. Uh, what's the what? What is the guy's name? The what's Archon. The, yeah, but what, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just standing behind the Archon as the Archon makes these like horrifying declarations and you know in the conversation he has with the he only really has one conversation with the archon in this reading but the archon is basically like oh that's interesting uh do you think we could throw people off a cliff (laughs) what what about if we fed them too much do you think we could feed people until they died you know he's literally just like trying to think up new cruelties and severian is responsible enough you know to his guild to like Yes, and this, you know, <laughs> to be like, yeah, that's a way of killing people of doing it. But, uh, you know, like like we're saying, there's just nothing to it. And also Dorcas has to become uh, the reader's sensibility here, too. You know, mm-hmm. she's always been the good side of Severian, but she's the good side for us. We're like that part that I read earlier where Severian is doing the justification, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, look, those 1600 people, they killed, you know, others. So. What do you say to the the you know wives and children? What do you say there, Dorcas? And she just completely ignores him. You know, because- he talks for a page and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it is a page and a half speech that he gives. Like we yeah. are not cruel. We take no delight in what we do, except in doing it well. Blah blah blah. He like just paragraph after paragraph, ending finally with uh. You know, after like what if we aren't doing anything to all these murderers, right? If the guilty are not to be locked away in comfort and are not to be tortured, what remains? If they are all killed, all killed alike, then a poor woman who steals will be thought as bad as a mother who poisons her own child, as Merwin of Saltus did. Would you wish that? In time of peace, many may be banished, but to banish them now would only be to deliver a corps of spies to the Asians to be trained and supplied with funds and sent back among us. Soon no one would be trusted, though he spoke our own tongue. Would you wish that? Like, and Dorcas just looks at him and mm-hmm. says nothing. And then he's like, okay, fine. We're all cruel. So <laughs> like a page and a half of that, all like her Twitter mentions, right? Just uh-huh. reply yes. after reply after reply after reply. And she says nothing. It is Severian outlining for Dorcas, right? A character who is only right. You know, Dorcas has the right of everything, and he is trying as hard as humanly possible to communicate this, like, very partial, and even if you just objectively look at the shape of the world, it's just inaccurate, right? Like, it's a wrong worldview, um, and she she's immune to it, you know? She she holds on to herself um, in a way that she has not been able to hold on to herself in the face of Severian mm-hmm. beforehand, um, and I, I think that's, that's, it's a fascinating moment, uh, moment. And also what we were talking about earlier, Austin of like, that's maybe a, a thing here too. If, if Dorcas can at any moment here, if, or in this part of the reading, if Dorcas can like throw up some immunity to just Severian's bullshit mm-hmm. for a minute or two, she can actually go become a person. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the break here too. Which, you know, it does get paid off when she leaves. There's the, the bit where, he comes to her and is like, no, remember how you used to always say I wasn't death itself? Um, and, and she's like, yeah, I guess I fell for my own trap. Like, I guess I'm the one now who, who sees you as death. Sorry. Uh, and I extremely enjoy the, the pivot there. Um, right. It is, it is, it is easily, it is, this is easy, easily the easiest it has been to be a Dorcas fan uh, yeah. reading this, <laughs> reading this book. 
Uh, follow me on my new alt Twitter account, Dorcas Fan, nineteen ninety nine. You know. <laughs> yeah, that the timing on that is really fantastic. Yeah, because it's that's the com- that's the, been the dynamic between them forever. Severian, you could become a carpenter, right, or whatever. Uh, and he's like, no, I have to be a torturer. And then he actually goes to this costume party where he goes in quote unquote costume in his in his torturer's mm-hmm. garb. Uh, and he has that moment where he like walks through the party and he feels extremely smug about himself because he's <laughs> like, no one in this room knew that I was the only one who was not in costume. I was truly the immovable torturer and that is what I was going to be and that was what I was always going to be. And by the end of this party, he has forsaken the torturer's guild and then gets back to Dorcas and he's like, guess what? Guess what, honey? I forsook the torturous guild. She's like, I already bought my ticket. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah, my, my key is on the countertop. I'll see you when I see you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love the part of that conversation where she's like, uh, she accuses him of talking like Jonas. Yeah. Oh, it's <laughs> yes. so, That's so good. good. That's such a weird little thing that is like, of course, like they, this is such a real human being fight. Uh huh. Because uh-huh. she's like, how did? When do the ships leave for Nessus to go downriver? And he was like, well, you know, you just push the ship in the middle of the stream, and uh, the river does the work for you. <laughs> she's like, shut the fuck shut up, Severian. <laughs> You're not Jonas. You'll never be. You're Jonas. not Jonas. Quit talking like Jonas. Oh, uh, but again, this is where we get this stuff that's like. The stuff that that is like it walking this line between fantasy and bourgeois novel stuff where where it's yeah. the like um, there was a time you told me I was not death, that I must not let others persuade me to think of myself in that way. It was behind the or- the orchard at uh, the orchard. Jesus, the orchard on the grounds of the house. Absolute. Do you the remember orchard. the orchard? The orchard is where the orcs gather, actually. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, uh, and then and then you have been death to me. Oh, yeah. beautiful. Love it. <laughs> yeah. It's so it is also very, you know, Thackeray style mm, where uh, mm-hmm. she drinks the she drinks out of the cup or whatever. And then she throws it out the window. Uh-huh. Yes. It's like, I didn't want you to catch what I had. <laughs> exactly. Death. <laughs> death. I have death. <laughs> I have caught death. Uh, it's uh, yeah, there, there's like, you know, it's melodrama almost. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. yeah, definitely. That's like really not in these books up until this. Point. Right. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's but it kind of rules. There's like there yeah. is stuff also. The stuff with him and I know we should just keep moving through it, obviously. But the stuff with him and the woman whose name I keep forgetting until I uh, go back. Yeah, what, to are, the, what are we making a call? On? I've been saying Syriaca. But Syriaca that is right. right. Syriaca is yeah. probably right. Right. OK. Uh, yeah. I just keep forgetting it exactly. But that also has some of this this like specific style of melodramatic flirting. The kiss me Severian, you know, like these big (laughs) dramatic um, things, which we'll get to when we get there, I guess. Let's it is. So, I mean, it's such a Severian moment. This little goblin child. He's met another woman and it's the milf type. And now he's like he's like horny exposition delivering milfs in my area. (laughs) Yes, please. Well, it's not just that too. It's like it it begins, and he's like, "She's not that hot." And, and, then, he and then he goes through the, literally in his brain a full list of every woman he's ever met, and he's like, uh-huh. "Theo was hotter than her. Thecla was hotter than her. Dorcas is hotter than her, even though she's short." You know, he like does all this stuff, and then two pages later, he's like, "You know, she's pretty hot. You know, she's telling me all these stories. It's a pretty hot story." 
And it's oh also like God. these are these are stories she probably told her kids at bedtime, right? <laughs> yeah. Resuming uh, some of the uh, Oedipal stuff that I pointed out at the end of the last episode. Oh right? yeah, yeah, it's all the way right? here. It's all the uh-huh. way. Hey, guess what? She's also tall. She uh-huh. is. She's, She's also kind of uh, an exultant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Severian loves the Archon, by the way, because he's so tall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we also get that great bit in here where. Severian is like, because um, I'm the only one in the room, they must think I might be part arc or part uh, exultant uh, mm-hmm. because they don't have a real exultant to compare me to, you know? <laughs> oh, it's really yeah, like this poor woman who only went to the house absolute once. <laughs> that, uh, speaking of, too, also the Vanity Fair stuff, right? That, uh, where she describes having gone to the yep. house absolute and uh-huh. going out. And, you know, she I, I don't have it right in front of me. Otherwise, I would read it. But she says, you know, she leaves the small room that she's in with her husband, the armager. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she's looking. She wants to go to the Well of Orchids. She wants to see it. Yeah. And she goes out and she says, you know, I I'm wearing regional jewelry from where i'm from i'm wearing gowns sewed by my maids mm-hmm. you know she's she she's homespun you know homespun mm-hmm. aristocracy mm-hmm. right you know right from, provincial from, truly provincial from from the country you know it's the it's the life thecla wanted after leaving the uh you know if she could ever leave uh the torturer's tower mm-hmm. but she goes out and then she sees a huge ass you know dude walking by this massive exultant uh and she asks him for directions and he looks at her and he pays attention to her. Well, and, you know? and and gives her the the directions. Mean God. which is to say, yeah. Which is to say uh, judges her as being someone who would be allowed to go there. Yes. Which mm-hmm. is Wor- this, worthy of participating in courtly life. Exactly, which is this great compliment to her beauty. In other yeah. words, right? Um, uh, and then she goes and her husband immediately sends her home. Right. Uh, she paused. Uh, uh, you know, I stopped him and asked him uh, if I might go to the well of or- or- uh, orchids. Here we go. Now it's orchids, not orchards. Uh, yep. She paused for the, sp- for the space of three or four breaths. There was no sound but the music from the pavilions and the tinkling of the fountain. And he stopped and looked at me, I think, in some surprise. You cannot know how it feels to be a little armored jet from the north in a gown sewn by your own maids and provincial jewels and to be looked at by someone who has spent all his life among the exultants of the House Absolute. Then he smiled. She gripped my hand very tightly now. And he told me down such and such a corridor and turn at such a statue, up a cer- up certain steps and along the ivory path. Oh, Severian, my lover. Her face was radiant as the moon itself. I knew the moment she had described had been the crown of her life and that she now treasured the love I had given her partially and perhaps largely because it had recalled to her that moment when her beauty had been weighed by one she felt fit to rule upon it and had not been found wanting. My reason told me I should take offense at that, but I could find no resentment in me, uh, and et cetera. Uh, and, and goes on and, and uh, you know, there we should probably put this in conversation with the Jalenta stuff and vanity that we talked mm-hmm. about last episode. Um, here, of course, Severian not moved to immediate terrible violence. Um, mm-hmm. uh, right, because it's not unnatural. Right, because it's not right. unnatural, right? This is natural. Yeah, big quotation vanity, here, right? right. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, quote, unquote. Uh, Sure, sure. Yeah, that's part. Of, and also it's because the social system is verifying her, right? right Not the other right. way around, mm-hmm. where it's this glamour or whatever. The 
Uh, and yeah, but she's foiled immediately, right? But it, it, it kind of doesn't matter. Right, well, yeah, Does she, it change? she's foiled because her husband comes by and is like, all right, let's go back to our little our little room in the in the house absolute. Uh, does it change your perspective here, thinking that that exultant might have been a cacogen? No. Let the cacogens cook. The cacogens are allowed to tell you where to go in the house absolute. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Cacogens are allowed to weigh in on human beauty standards. Okay. <laughs> The cacogens on the – remind me if this is right. The yeah. paper slip – we've got to start moving through this story linearly because we're just jumping all around because there's a lot going – because there's actually because there's not so much going on that we There's feel only like, like three things that happen. Like we've talked things. about one of them, yeah. so we're moving to the second. So sure. Okay. Yeah. So then let's go back because the, the, the question I have is actually right. about this. So okay. uh, uh, there's the conversation with Dorcas. And then is the conversation with the Archon right after that, or does he go out and about first? He goes out and about, finds Dorcas. He goes out and about, explores the city a little bit, right. finds Dorcas, has the long conversation with Dorcas. Right. Then it's the next day. And then it's the next, he goes and talks to the Archon. The Archon says, hey, uh, I need you for a little thing. <laughs> hey, can you, has anybody ever been thrown out a oh, window? Wait, 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 wait. And we skipped wait, something, I'm what sorry. we skip? I've gotten this all out of whack. Okay, you have. I'm sorry. Dorcas and he split up in the morning. Right. Dorcas goes and learns about chair. Right. Severian looks at the city. Right. They we meet each other talking. again. Yeah. They meet each other again. She is, uh, you know, speechless. Right. Um, not interacting. Severian takes her to the duck's foot in or whatever it's called. The duck's rest. Yeah. Duck's rest. Stashes her there for a while. The woman there is like, eee, this is a little shady. This seems yeah. weird. Did you buy this woman? Right, but I'll keep her like, for you. Well, and she, but she says I won't. I won't keep her prisoner. Right. Then right, while right, Dorcas yeah. is there, Severian talks to the Archon, goes to the party. Right. Then after the party, deals with the Salamander, mm-hmm. and then after that, talks to Dorcas, and then they split. And then they split that is the, right. the the set of events. So let us talk about the Archon conversation, and then the party. Can we also we should also talk about the city because we haven't talked about sure. what the setup yeah. for the city is. Oh, we can do that. Let's do that now. What okay. is Thrax, Austin? Thrax, well, okay, so first, the thing you need to understand is that the river of Thrax itself is like a dagger, like a crooked dagger. Um, uh, is it actually called the river of Thrax, or is it is it called something else? I forget. It's the ace or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Something, yeah, 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 yeah. It's got it a is. name. Um, uh, yeah, uh, because the Asians are the people they're fighting, so presumably the, they're yeah the the, the two names or whatever, right? Yeah, um, and it's, it's the headwaters for the the Nessus. for the Nessus, right? And yeah. It is sort of the inverse. Or the Gaiole, sorry. The Gaiole, not the Nessus is the city. Uh, it, it is sort of the inverse of what you traditionally think of as like the tiered city of mm-hmm. uh, of a fantasy setting, right? You, you know, you traditionally you have the like, um, what's the big, what's the big Lord of the Rings one? Because that's not Minas Tirith. Uh, Minas Tirith. It is Minas Tirith. Baldur's okay. Gate. Oh, is Baldur's Gate also a, a tiered yeah. city like that? Okay. Yes. Nar Shaddaa. Right, Nar Shaddaa, of course, Coruscant mm-hmm. itself, right? All the, the great <laughs> fantasy cities um, mm-hmm. where up you go up high and things get good and you go down low and, oh, no, this is the mm-hmm. slums and everything is scary and, and there's crime and maybe, you know, giant mm-hmm. rat kings to fight, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's Frederick Jameson's whole deal. <laughs> right. This is the inverse of that where high up in the hills looking down – um, you have people who have who have just barely carved themselves homes into the rock uh, and clay, and then as you get closer and closer to the source of water of the river, you get closer and closer to wealth and power, 
Um, and so uh, down below, you get the the palace of the Archon uh, looking at, maybe still looking out over a cliff in my mind. It still has height because the mm-hmm. there are waterfalls. There's like a bunch of waterfalls throughout the city. Um, and then, and then towards the middle, you get the prison that that uh, that he runs as the Lictor, um, that mm-hmm. also has the water coming down from below that he can that is kind of gathering in the what is the actual name of the thing that does gather the vincula? The vincula is where the right where the where the water yeah the gathers. vincula is kind of a big massive tunnel just burrowed straight into the rock. And it has a outlet to it that drops down to the river. Right, exactly. And so he can run water through there to clean it out, uh, yep. which we talked about before. Um, uh, but it also the city is also this other thing, which is that it is the sort of it's sort of a gateway between north and south, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, if you recall during the last book, uh, we we passed you know out of uh, Nessus proper and into the small towns to the north of it, and then eventually to the, the like the kind of open um, uh, the pompous of of the kind of northern part of South America. Uh, and towards uh, you know the these old ruined villages and cities that where the the stuff happened with Abu Punchau is that right is that what his name was mm-hmm. that's uh, name and uh, and and now we're in a city that sort of connects all of these different types of peoples and so we get a lot of work done here early on in describing Thrax as being the place where the peoples of Nessus the sort of farming and um, uh, and agricultural folks to the north of Nessus, the local, um, uh, the, the, the autochthons, which is like a, a, a Greek way of saying the indigenous folks of this area, and then tribal peoples from the north kind of all mix and mingle. Um, and the way that that is discussed is uh, a lot about the way those different types of peoples are. And it kind of comes to a point. I mean, I laugh because I'm thinking about how much knives are referenced here. The mm-hmm. knives of the tribal peoples twisting the same way the river Thrax does, such that they can slip under a, a rib, uh, the, the one of your rib bones, and get at some organs. Um, but it, it, it kind of does come to a point in which, in which, uh, Severian. Um, basically says the worst of the people here are those that have have mixed blood because they have the civilized cruelty of his people mixed with the sort of um he doesn't use the word savage right because his whole point is that that's not that that word doesn't quite apply but that the the mixing is the worst of it um and i think that's important to call out well and he does that through a metaphor, right? You right. Know, he does that through a metaphor by saying that the in the beast the dogs, tower, yeah, uh-huh. right. The the most vicious creature you could make was a trained war dog, a fighting dog, and like a wolf, right. right? A wild wolf, something like that. So I don't think he even actually says it, right? It's just given to us as a metaphor. Right? Yeah, it's a pretty. It was a pretty clear metaphor, though. Yeah, you know. But I mean, but that 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 choice is notable, right? right to right. not have Severian tell you. Uh, it no, is okay, the mixing you know, he of does. He says it pretty directly. He says, like what the dog say? wolves, which I never saw because, oh, right, because right. they were too vicious to be useful. These eclectics, the eclectics are these kind of multiracial people, uh, took all that was most cruel and ungovernable from their mixed parentage. As friends or followers, they were sullen, disloyal, and contentious. As enemies, fierce, deceitful, and vindictive. So at least I had heard from my subordinates at the Vincula, for eclectics <laughs> made up more than half the prisoners there. So the, the, these, the, the subordinates two pages ago were talking about 
about how the you know they're making shit up about Severian. Right, totally. Well, and it's two it's, pages it's, ago. The start of this paragraph is yeah. which I never saw. Yeah. Right? Like, right, none of this shit <laughs> right. is is, re- is real. What's really happening here is yeah. so the the eclectics are uh, a social group that are the descendants of settlers from the south who'd mix their blood. This is a quote. Now, this is not me. Let me be very clear. Mm-hmm. Who'd mix no, their blood? Saying. No, yeah, yeah, no. Go with, with the squat. Keep going, Austin. This is these are your words. These are my words. With the squat dark autochthons adopted yeah. certain of their customs and mingled these with still others acquired from amphitryons farther north and those in some instances of even less known people, traders and parochial races. And so, you know, there is a real now. There's the 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 noble autochthons who still have a connection to their ancient ways. There's us, the civilized folks in the south, and then there's these like these uh, mixed eclectics, yeah, which was a word that get deployed in the last book without any clarity mm-hmm. around what it meant, which I thought yeah. was really interesting. You know, well, uh, yeah, I I mean the the thing that we are getting, and this is a little bit of like you know, maybe I've been laying track here, y'all. Mm-hmm. If if there is a uh, difference, right, that Severian is pointing out between exultants and other human beings, Severian is also pointing out a difference between this group of people and himself. Um, and I don't – one way you could interpret that is like, oh, Severian's like in an ideologically racist society and that's just part of his deal, right? Uh, the other way of interpreting that is that uh, this is part of the commonwealth, right, that mm. like – racial thinking and racial blood purity is a thing they care about significantly. Let me read you a little passage. Can mm-hmm. I read a little passage? Please. I'll allow it. It's on page nine of the Castle of the Otter. It goes actually back to what you were talking about earlier, Oscar. Very few seem even to have noticed that although Christ was a, quote, humble carpenter, the only object we were specifically told he made was not a table or a chair, but a whip. And if Christ knew not only the pain of torture, but the pain of being a torturer, as it seems certain to me that he did, then the dark figure is also capable of being a heroic and even holy figure, like the black Christ carved in Africa. That's Gene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying one way or the other, right? But mm-hmm. I'm saying if there's a limiting factor here about thinking about who does what and under what conditions... It, it might also be, uh, you know, at the level of the writer. Right. The thing that's actually happening in Thrax, or one way to read this stuff, is that the people who are effectively uh, – the fact that the bulk of the people in the prison are eclectics, are mixed mm-hmm. race, yeah. uh, who cannot retreat to some core identity uh, that is acceptable inside of the way that the Commonwealth thinks race, yep. I think is, is Gene trying to do a thing. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I don't know that the book is actually interested in doing that thing, um, but it's one of those like little world building details that you drop in to try to communicate something about something. And mm-hmm. I think, yes, maybe running up against those limits uh, to some Well, degree. I think he's trying to think seriously about it, just as the thing from The Castle of the Otter I just right, read is right. thinking seriously about yep. it. But it also reveals the limits of how he can think yep. seriously about it totally. or how he's interested in thinking seriously about it. The mm-hmm. And also, in addition to what you just said, too – they they can't retreat to identity, you know. They can't retreat to maybe I've got exultant blood, you know. The right. the thing Severian does. They also literally can't retreat, right? Like they can't go further south, right? Right. Because they don't, you know, they don't. Uh, they're not those people, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that seems to be a big part and presumably of it too. can't go further north because they're not Asians, right? Like yeah. this is the this is the space that they are in. This is well, that's the fear, right? Mm-hmm. That that's what uh, Severian says. The fear is that they might be Asians, right? right they're Asian right, spies right. or whatever, right? So they they damned if they do. If you go further north, then you get, might get associated with them. Think also later about what we hear about the Cacogens later in this piece that. If you're even near the Cacogens, there's an assumption that you might be a Cacogen and you might be working with the Asians. So going north, period, is damning in some ways. Right. Even if you're going to fight the war. Um, um, this is this is a thing that, that I was thinking about while reading this was um, this past year I read The Northwest is Our Mother, um, the story of uh, Louis Riel's people, the Metis Nation. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Which, uh, which is a, a really, really interesting um, uh, you know history of – uh, the, the Métis, who are a, I believe I'm pronouncing that right. I believe the S is silent there. An indigenous folk, an indigenous people in in uh, you know what is what is now Canada. Um, uh, that is explicitly uh, a mix of indigenous folks and a kind of French fur and trap work, you know, trapping workers um, mm-hmm. uh, during the the early colonization of uh, of Canada. Uh, and and a, a lot of the same sort of feeling here of being caught between worlds, uh, being accepted effectively to some degree by indigenous folks, other indigenous you know, tribes and stuff, but but being caught in this space where there was no finding a way forward without uh, effectively, you know, for, for the Métis becoming um, uh, revolutionary is the wrong word because for them it's not like – they were a nation that was that was conquered. They've never been conquered. Uh, they were a people who who were outside of the boundaries of what the other established kind of um, state actors were. Uh, really interesting read. Have you read the Chester Brown comic? I've not. No. It it's it it's worth reading, especially if you know enough about it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like where you don't need it to be like the full exhausting thing. But there are also like lots of humorous anecdotes from his oh. life. That you know the story—it's really funny. I mean, like the whole thing is yeah. the history of the Métis is the history of these like the early Métis are like uh, uh, you know it's it's local indigenous uh, people who have adopted in these big you know broad-shouldered uh, French adventuring fur trappers who are like you know going down the rivers and singing goofy songs and being weirdos and it's like. It's a really f- there's lots of really fun and funny stuff happening. So yeah, uh, right. I see that it's it's the Louis Riel comic by yeah. Chester Brown, right? Okay. Yeah, it's good. It, yeah, it's yeah. worth re- uh, opinions on Chester Brown, notwithstanding. Sure. Uh, uh-huh. the, the comic is is an interesting comic. Um, and the, uh, Jeremy in the Discord, uh, Jeremy Antley, uh, you know, a war game simulation person mm-hmm. who cares about those things, has told me repeatedly about. A Louis, uh, the trial of Louis Riel, uh, like war game. Oh, interesting. Done. It's like a simu- you know, simulation of what goes on. But anyway, uh, so yeah, it's a fascinating set of things. <laughs> Michael, do you have opinions about the uh, the city here, about Thrax, about what's going on? Uh, not especially. Nothing that hasn't already been covered, I would say. Mm, what about this Archon? I mean, he's a slime ball. <laughs> He big, though. You can't be all bad. He too big to be too bad. Well, I, I think uh, clocking this is like a little bit hard boiled is a good uh, indicator of like the type of character he is, which is to say, like, 
In the same way that the, uh, oh, what was he called? The Alcalde in, in uh, mm-hmm. Saltus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a little bit unctuous. Uh, like the, the, the thing that made him so kind of off-putting was um, the way he had fit himself hand in glove into all of the uh, like necessities of his position and took sort of pleasure in, you know, putting together these public executions to keep people happy during the fair day. Oh, we got some people to kill. Let's have a fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's that kind of thing, but in a slightly more urbane way, right? The, the way that uh, the way that he gets introduced where like Severian walks into his apartments and uh, the Archon is standing at the window, like looking down at yes. the city Right. Like that's that's L.A. That's L.A. right right there. Yep. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And he's like he's not uh, the the Archon doesn't uh, seem like out like he's not a a, a, like a mad king type. Right. He's he's not that sort of thing. But as I I think it was you, Cameron, was talking about, he's like, you know, could you could you kill someone by making them eat too much? Is that (laughs) is that a thing that you could do, Severian? Mm -hmm. Like my little torture Wikipedia Severian is kind of your own personal torture Wikipedia. You yeah. Know? Right. And he, uh, uh, you know, he he does what he's supposed to do, which is like he's holding court. Uh, mm-hmm. The people who are there to be the show for him. Right. Severian is uh, part of what's uh, happening in these chapters is we're seeing that Severian is an instrument of state power, a symbol of it. Right. I mean, that's that's how it begins with Dorcas being like, hey, you know, people hate you. Right. And kind of <laughs> hate me because of it. Like uh, her whole thing is she like went to a, a one of the public baths and someone saw her and then she overheard people talking about her being like, oh, you know, she's the torturer's woman or the, you know, the uh, executioner's woman. Um, So, uh, you know, it's uh, a similar sense of like, well, everything here is kind of like how it is supposed to be and how it is supposed to be is bad. In fact, I think the other thing that makes this all feel uh, very noirish is, in fact, that you've heard about these burn murders that have been going on. People just occasionally mention it's kind of like L.A. noir. Uh, all these people are getting set on fire. What's up with What's that? Up? What's, going uh, on? What's going on with that? Yeah. You, you're talking to the Archon. You hit you hit distrust. Doubt. Yes. <laughs> Doubt. Yeah. His, his face screws up. You don't think I've got something to do with the people being murdered, do you? You got nothing on me. Severian. Severian. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. The, the, that sequence is, is the sequence with uh, Abdicius or Abdicius or whatever it is. Um, in that, in the room, it really, along with the description of the prison before, um, which again, we didn't really get into it, but you know, the prison is basically one long tunnel of people mm-hmm. chained to the wall, just to far both walls. to both walls, right? To both walls on both sides of the wall, just far enough apart from one another that they couldn't like reach out and touch each other or kick each other or, or, you know, work together on in, in order to escape. Uh, and then a, a branching of tunnels from when people have tried to escape and dig their way out. Or after that, when new fake tunnels have been added so that people who do manage to break out of the chains uh, think that they might be heading towards a potential exit or instead of heading towards a dead end, that and the description of how bad life is for the people who are stuck there um, with then the very genial and urbane abdesis 
uh, and the the Archon's office, the again the sort of like you said, Michael, the the noirish looking out over the city. Or I guess it's not really looking out over the city because of the way the height stuff works here. But you know th- that feeling of it uh, is part of where that big noir hit and hard boiled stuff came came for me. And it emphasizes the the pivot I was talking about before, or trying to talk about before, which is that like when the torturer is described, when the role of the torturer is first described in Shadow of the Torturer. You think of the person who is – you hear it so often that they only do what is asked of them. And mm-hmm. and the description that's being explained, you know, or the way it's, it's being framed then is that the torturer exists uh, directly in relation to the Altark, right? The Altark makes a demand. The torturer follows through with it. Mm-hmm. That is not the reality. The reality is that 1,600 people are being tortured constantly because some asshole in, in a robe – uh, doesn't care about them, right? And thinks that like, yeah, the easiest thing to do is to go put them in the big, the long hallway where the other, you know, biracial people are who keep causing trouble. Like that's literally the thing that's happening here, right? Uh, and so to the degree that he is a torturer, he is still a torturer, but the torture is not a thing that's being assigned on a crime by crime basis. Uh, it is, it has become subject to the realities of, of administration, Right. Uh, in the same way that Nessus is a city that that can never be fully governed, but neither can the police ever go away. Right. The way that that that, that one like police chief basically describes it to us. We now have this archon who is like, well, this is the easiest way to run this place. Right. He doesn't say that Severian says it kind of on his behalf to Dorcas earlier on. What would you have us do? We, we talked through that already. But the reality of what torture is is industrial and is is it, it exists at a mass scale, not at an individual scale, where maybe you could start to think about, you could be convinced a little bit in that early book that like, oh, well, the tort at least the torturers aren't blank. You know, you could you could mm-hmm. convince right. that's not the reality of what torture is in the world. The thing that torture really is in the world is 1600 people lined up uh in their own, you know, in their own waste waiting, hoping for uh, a rainfall such that the vincula will be flooded again, which yeah. is wild. And then the end point of all that, uh, that the, the thing that seems to get Severian or someone else to finally call it quits is that ultimately the Archon is also the guy who's going to be like, and I need you to come to my party tonight and kill this woman who has basically just been annoying yeah. to a friend of mine. Yep. Because she is like it is. Uh, so what we learn and this is this is like presented if you're not reading along is presented as like, you know, sort of surprise information. Uh, the Archon is uh, in a kind of wobbly position politically. Uh, Syriaca, who we've talked about before, her husband is one of the few uh, armagers in the area who is just like fully on board with this Archon. But the Archon is or, uh, uh, her husband, the armager is off doing business uh, uh, on various occasions. So she's left at home alone a lot, again, very noirish. And so mm-hmm. she takes up a series of lovers and this is shaming her husband. And so the Archon is like, I can't have one of my main guys get shamed like this. Uh, Severian, you you have to take her out. Now take this little piece of paper. I know what you're wondering, what's on the paper? Well, uh, it's, it's a fucking uh, alien. It's one of the aliens where the face is all teeth. Don't worry about it. Just show it to the guy at the door. They'll let you in. Hey, it's all got gold on it. 
It's so I, funny. I spent money at the printer, Severian. Hey! hey. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's very weird, yeah. It's very funny that, I mean, again, which again goes into what we've learned, uh, what we end up learning from from uh, Syriaca, which is, it seems like maybe the Altark is under the thumb of the, cac- of the Cacogens. Yeah, the kind of political upshot we get out of these chapters seems to be the the people under the ocean mm-hmm. have you know the Erebus, Abaya, all that stuff. They got their own thing going on, and they have allied with Vodalus. On the other side, there is the Autark, who commands the Commonwealth, but seems to maybe be hostage to. It, it, you know, in the the kind of maneuver of power for Cacogens mm-hmm. in the House Absolute itself, who govern from somewhere else, from another planet, maybe. Mm-hmm. And also, we know that Father Inair, Father Inire, is a Cacogen too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So hmm, I can't you know wait I mean? for the like, blowback season about this proxy war between two great superpowers. <laughs> but that does seem to be what it is, yeah. right? Like it, it seems mm-hmm. to be that it, there is a proxy war between aliens from somewhere else who live in the ocean and aliens from somewhere else who live on the land. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and humans are caught in between or what we call a human is caught in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty weird stuff. Uh, there's something else that's on that piece of paper too, right? I mean, it's an invitation specifically. But he's <laughs> it's the invitation it as to the party. A little circle of paper, which is like so. Yes, it's an it's an invitation, and again, is the picture? Is there another thing on there? That I'm yeah, there is. I think it was something that was really weird, and I don't have it. Well, I mean, down. I think I think it's a bunch of like grotesque things that are intended to show that it's a masquerade party. Right. Yeah, but there's also That's, like other things that we have seen in the book so far. That's why I just didn't write the page number. It's the man apes. It's the mouth. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. the face. The face ringed yeah. with fangs that he saw in the Altark's garden during the when when Baldanders right. jumps down and fights them. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's all stuff Severian's seen before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the th- that's what I'm saying. Yes. Isn't that, yes. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, isn't it interesting that it seems like everyone here knows about uh, you know all of the Cacogens wearing masks in the House Absolute. Yeah, well, that's again, that's the thing that uh, Syria. Because that's what she says, right? She's like, yeah, yeah she's like, everyone knows, knows this. That. You didn't know that. You didn't know about the aliens that we all know about. Really? Only peons don't know. She says. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Severian goes into this party, sits down with her, starts chatting, blah blah blah. Oh, there's um, there's a bunch of, uh, you know, he sees people in costumes. I yeah, do want to yeah. shout the moment that he. Runs into a bunch of it's a bunch of white people dressed in in like tribal wear, and yeah. then he meets an indigenous guy who's also dressed poorly in fake tribal clothing, uh, and then he realizes he's laughing at how bad the costume is, and then he realizes, oh, you're dressing as a white girl at Coachella. You're doing your costume is the the hoity toity you know, uh, higher class people here dressing as your people. That's the costume you're in. You and I are on the same page, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real... uh, (laughs) It's it's, uh, amazing that you can, like, go back 40 years and find someone, you know, like, the most devastating tweet. Uh (laughs) (laughs) That Gene Wolfe came to that suddenly himself. Uh Uh-huh. 
um, all the way back. It's really kind of like the McDonald's is president of a hundred percent. It's that style of, of yes, yeah. The exact thing here is um, uh, uh, I saw men and women costumed as autochthons with their faces stained russet. <laughs> like they are in blackface, man. They're in yeah. brown face yeah. and dad yeah. with white. Uh, and even one man who was an autochthon and yet was dressed like one in a costume no more and no less authentic than the others. So that I was inclined to laugh at him until I realized that though he and I might be the only ones who knew it, he was in fact costumed more originally than than any of the rest as a citizen of Thrax in costume. Yeah. Let's go. And then he That's has this cool. little sidebar, which is like, hey, what if what if the new son, the Daystar himself, showed up? What if the conciliator <laughs> so showed funny. up yeah. and yes. made all these costumes real and made it yeah. so that the the officers who are dressed as women and the women dressed as officers became those things. He has no point here. He just kind of is well, laughing no, he to does, himself. No, he, he, does he does have a weird point here because he says, "What if the what, what if the conciliator came and did all that?" And uh, I was left alone. Yep. Uh-huh. And I was the only one right. who was unimpacted. Right. What if the world mm-hmm. re- revolved and revolted and transformed in all possible ways, and yet sure. I remained the same? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. As I said, the velocity of light is unchanged by mathematical transformations. The reason I say... What if I was the universal constant? Sorry, the reason I say he had no point is because I don't think he has to himself a point. (laughs) What he's doing is grinning to himself behind his mask. Right. Uh, And the claw drives itself into his chest as if to say, dude... Mm -hmm. Hey, giggle boy. Quit that. Think about what you're thinking about. (laughs) Yeah, this is what I was talking about where, he, yeah, he's he's like very self-satisfied in his own solidity. And then by the end of this entire ordeal, he has forsaken the guild. I also love how immediately after this long discursus on costumes and how he's the only person who's like really got a handle on it because he's imagining what everyone, how ashamed yes. everyone would be if God showed up. Uh, <laughs> he, he sees uh, a woman dressed as a pelerine and he's like, by God, it's a pelerine. I need to ask <laughs> where the other pelerines party. are. Yeah. <laughs> what are the chances? <laughs> but here's the thing. She is a pelerine. She does. And she know. is. I mean, well, this is, you know, the, what is a costume party, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes you just got to go get your former religious vestiture and throw that on. You already got a costume. Right. You're ready to go. Yeah. This is what former monks and priests, they do this every <laughs> Halloween. Is that allowed? I mean, there is just like, so yeah. Once you leave, they can't tell you what to do. (laughs) Damn. That's like the whole deal, right? Yeah, Yeah, that's that's Syriaca that he's just been. There's just so much going on here. In addition to what I already said, what we've already talked about, that she's like, you know, this sort of uh, uh, country milf. Uh, (laughs) She's also wearing what turns out to be her uniform from when she was a novice nun. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And Severin is like, but it's okay because on her end, this is important to this is this relationship uh, ends up feeling a little bit different from a lot of the encounters that Severian has had um, because we get some like unambiguous and forthright desire from Syriaca about him. Right. She is into the fact that he is like uh, young, hot and built and wears a foliage and cloak like she is about it. (laughs) Can can we disappear into your foliage and cloak? Yeah, we could do that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, we could, it'll cover everybody. It'll cover, it'll cover it up. Yeah, she's uh-huh. like, can we keep it on? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. God, 
They're the bit where she's like, I know what your face looks like. And she's like, no, I'm wearing a mask. I have a mask on. You couldn't know what my face is like. You don't know. Yeah, you don't know me. And she's like, I, no, because I can see your hips. I know what your face looks like. I know you have a chin cleft. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> uh, here, I'll take off my mask. No, don't take off your mask. Let yeah, me imagine. I, could, I already know. I already know. God. It's bizarre. Uh, but yeah, so she is, she, it turns out, was a nun in training, was going to join the Pelerines. Decided that she wanted to be in the world where she could have sex and have love and not be living in a tent, a ragged tent citadel that traveled from place to place. Uh, but before she did made that decision, she'd spent a year in that final year of candidacy where they give you your vestments, basically, so mm-hmm. that you can just see them and try them on and make adjustments to them. And like they can just be part of your life presumably to to trigger this response. And of course, what we're, we're getting a little bit here is like the alternate path for Severian, right? She didn't lie when they came to her and said, are you sure you want this? She just left. She said, you know what? I don't want this actually. And Severian was like, you know, I totally would be a, I'm, yeah, I'm torturer's number one. And then secretly every night he's like crossing his fingers and saying, I love you, Vodalus. I love you. You know, uh, and so she just she didn't make that that lie, and so has this sort of vestigial vestment that she can now wear as a costume, which again potentially mirrors the fact that he is already wearing his his uniform as a costume, right? Um, there's a the, the place this eventually goes is that he finds himself looking at her and seeing Thecla and and feeling mm-hmm. guilt for the crime of of uh, not saving her or not breaking her out. But I also think that you have to read this a little bit as him looking to a mirror and seeing himself, right? Or seeing a mm-hmm. version of himself. And he doesn't make that connection because he's Severian, right? Yeah, yeah. But. To be very explicit here, again, in case you're not reading along, uh, what Severian ends up admitting here is that he could have saved Thecla and didn't. And right. he like yeah. he knew exactly how to do it. Like there, he he comes up with like sort of all the uh, sort of barriers that even at the moment he was rehearsing to himself. Oh, that there were too many brothers nearby and all that stuff. But then he immediately returns with, and I could have done this, and I could have done this, and I could have done this. But ultimately, what I would have had to have done to actually save Thecla is forsake the guild, and I did not love her enough to do that. And that's when we get uh, Thecla screaming in some corner of his mind. Uh-huh. Right. Because he could have done it. Now, in the middle of all of this... And the only way he decided to do that is by killing her. Mm-hmm. He could have done it, <laughs> right. and instead and he so chose he, to kill her. Right, right. Now, in the middle of all of this, we get a story. <laughs> what do we yes. make of this? That it's fucking cool. Can you, can you summarize it for us? Yeah, we made computers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we sure did. Computer big, like computer, <laughs> c- computer so big they hate themselves. <laughs> like you've heard of the Butlerian Jihad, right? Okay, so like let's make the weirdest version of that possible. <laughs> yeah, the the story that Syriaca tells him is that because they're talking about the Oltan's archives, right? Mm-hmm. The or really the Autarchs archives, mm-hmm. the library in Nessus. And she's like, hey, well, you know the story about that, right? Because he he says he's looking for the Pelerines to give them something back. And she says, well, what are the Pelerines? You, you know, what do you have from the Pelerines? And he's like, uh-oh, uh, uh, uh-oh, this book, this book <laughs> I have. Um, and she's like, oh, this is, you know, where'd this come from, blah, blah, blah. 
And she says, well, do you know about this archive and where it came from? And he says, well, you know, I know a little bit about it. Tell me. And she says, well, once long ago, human beings built, made uh, creations that took over everything for them. They administrated everything. And uh, because human beings believe that one, one of the things that were an issue for people is essentially our creativity, you know, our human spirit, our, our uh, craftsmanship, our creativity, all these things, we kind of offloaded that onto computers. And so human beings became this austere species of, you know, like what, whatever you're like, like imagine like a Star Trek species that like uh, has never seen color. It's like the Pleasantville mm-hmm. you know, episode of Star Trek, right? Like that's what all of human culture becomes. It just like... Uh, computers control everything. They like poop out gray goo that we eat and they like make our tables and chairs and administrate the universe. The computers, because we invested them with all of our creativity and capacity for, for uh, you know, joy and love and whatever, they said, we need to give this back. It's bad that humans don't have this. And so they slowly began to re-inject that into culture by making by diving into the history of humanity and making these baroque, you know, uh, you know, cities that are in the shape of the bones of a dragon, you know, mm-hmm. they just start producing things that are like wild artworks while also slowly destroying themselves. And so the, the computer civilization, um, you know, of, of, uh, AI, whatever, right. Uh, starts destroying itself and becoming more and more baroque and weird. And eventually comes to the point of the end of, of their course and begins in, begins investing a very small number of people because human beings are not really picking up the baton here and they're slowly dying off as this empire, this computer empire decays. And so the computers are building and building and building and there are fewer and fewer people. And so in the final you know generations of these computers, they bring people together to them and invest them with all of the knowledge that they had. And because there are all these different computers or different AIs or whatever, they uh, have different factions and those factions begin to war with one another. And then they start writing down their knowledge and that knowledge gets eventually shared sort of. At one point, a pre-autarch brings all of the information together that it, that he can. He, he gathers every all the after the computers are dead, all the stored knowledge that has been gathered by the the acolytes of the computer age. He brings it all together into a big pile because he's going to burn it. And in that moment, the day before he's going to burn it, he has a dream of of the capability. To if his autocracy does not work out, he could at least retreat into the the history of humanity, into all the dreams and capacities and potentials that humans had. And so instead of burning it, he builds an archive. That archive is Master Altan's library beneath Nessus, where it lives today. And she says, isn't that interesting, Severian? And he continues on with his life. <laughs> well, he says, yeah, it's a good story. I think I know more of it than you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? He literally says, it's a wonderful story. I think that perhaps I know more of it than you, but I'd never heard it before, which is a banger response for an asshole to say. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, th- I think I know more about that than you do. And no, the you next, don't. I want to be clear, the next line, same paragraph is, I found that her legs were long and smoothly tapered from thighs like cushions of silk. <laughs> to slender ankles. All her body indeed was shaped for delight. 
Gene Wolfe loves a cushiony thigh. That mm-hmm. motherfucker loves a thigh. He loves a thigh. Mm-hmm. He's about it. He's he's constantly. Well, what do y'all think? So that's the story. That's the bones. Of yes, that's story. Yes. It is better told in the thing. Because I mean, there's it's like that section kind of in the middle where like the computers give everyone like a like a not a guardian angel, but like an AI ghost companion. Yeah, a companion. Yeah, yeah. companion. Yeah, it's fun. I, I yeah, I was like, I don't know what that is. That's cool though. Yeah, yeah. So it like lives in your head and has spirit for you or something. Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah, what it said is uh, at first so that things that they were returning, the computers were returning to humans would not be rejected again. The machines conceived of pageants and phantasmagoria whose performances inspired those who watched them to think on fortune or revenge or the invisible world. Later, they gave each man and woman a companion unseen by all other eyes as an advisor. The children had such companions long before. So they made imaginary friends real. Right, right. <laughs> Is this um, is this doing a thing that I'm not picking up? Like, is this like a direct reference the way some of the previous stuff has been? Is this a direct reworking mm-hmm. of something? I'm happy for it not to be. I don't be clear, think so. I think but, this is like uh, some some new lore. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it, and the reason I say that is that um, Long Sun and Short Sun pick this up. Okay. Mm-hmm. So is the read then here, or, or, or maybe here is one read, um, uh, which is this is the period immediately before. I mean, I guess it is, right? Because like the, the, the end of this is, the, is a proto-Altark, right? Uh, yeah. The first Altark or the pre-first Altark. Um, yeah. But this era of, of Jonas's timeline, because he makes this connect, yes. correct, or connect, direct connection to Jonas, quote, with the light, bright metal where the skin of his loins ought to have been, um, uh, you know, an era of, you know, computer technology, uh, mm-hmm. so powerful. In the age of computers, there were there were robot asses and, and imaginary <laughs> right. friends. And, and imaginary and we friends. I guess yeah. I don't know where Jonas fits on that time. If Jonas is before the computers fully took over or at the, the pre-Altark part where the computers were dying out, not particularly. I guess I, actually, actually we do know because because – because the story starts with, you must know the story of how the race of ancient days uh, reached the stars and how they bargained away the wild half of themselves to do so, so that they yeah. no longer cared for the taste of the pale wind, nor for love or lust, nor to make new songs, nor to sing old ones, nor for any of the other animal things they believed they had brought with them out of the yeah. rainforest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This goes forever. Right. So, um, Well, I love the second part of that, which is that uh, <laughs> right after that, where she's like, and they didn't even think about the fact that that's what brought them out of the rainforest. Right. Was but like the, culture was and the passion. things that we enjoy. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And storytelling. And, you know, that's some real Gene Wolf stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, there's no way of there's knowing, no way. Right? Of knowing. I mean, it's fine to th- not there know. are. Yeah, there are there are future things that Wolf writes that maybe um, uh, fill in some of the blanks here. If mm-hmm. you take those to matter, right? I don't, so <laughs> we'll never know. Um, but uh, th- I think the thing that's important here for me that I thought about when reading this is like if exultants are you know kind of a, a, a separate species mm-hmm. or or you know related to humans in some way is are they because they are you know the valorized form of humanity. Are they the remnant of the people who did this to themselves, right? Are they the spacefaring people mm-hmm. uh, who went and did all these other things? And that would imply that Jonas is not, because Jonas is, right. you Jonas know, he's not, not a big that. tall man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's actually a robot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's part of it, right? Like, 
that, that, here's another alternate story, right? Are the people that remove passions from themselves, are they people who turn themselves to robots? Into robots. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. They right. removed mm-hmm. the flesh and what they were left with was... Because was, was remember what yeah. Jonas gets when he puts flesh back on himself, right? Yeah. Desire. He gets horny. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he starts saying all kinds of weird phrases and shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he becomes a folk walking folktale. <laughs> Jonas like, is so good. One little bit uh, that I want to pluck out here because it's actually a slight correction to the way that you summarized it, Cameron. And it it maybe suggests um, one way of thinking about this in terms of intertext is that there's a little bit of a a, like Tower of Babel thing going on here Mm, or sort of like, you know, what if the Tower like what what is the Tower of Babel at the end of history rather than at the beginning? Uh, Mm. Because uh, specifically once the computers or the machines right start shutting down. Uh, they they seem to sort of expect in in Syriacus telling to just sort of be left alone to die, but it turns out that there are still humans who love to hang out with them and learn stuff from them. Uh, and so uh, then all whom they had loved and who had loved them, that is those who had loved the machines, uh, took counsel together as to how their teachings could be preserved because in the final days, the machines are like passing on all that they know to these specific acolytes. Uh, For they well knew their kind would not come again upon earth, but bitter quarrels broke out among them. They had not learned together, but rather each of them, man or woman, had listened to one of the machines as if there were no one in the world but those two. And because there was so much knowledge and only a few to learn it, the machines had taught each differently. Thus they divided into parties and each party into two and each of those two into two again, until at last every individual stood alone, misunderstood and reviled by all the others and reviling them uh then each went away and then they like all like disperse and they like sort of start mm-hmm. founding their own cults and all this stuff and then what the autarch does is like round up all of this factionalization and put it into one archive right mm-hmm. right yeah there's a real um like this is another part of the dying earth story genre, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the machine that runs the world that we discover, you know, that's a big 1950s science fiction mm-hmm. thing. It was also just um, like uh, the thing I like there too, you talked about the, the tower of Babel here. It's also just like the invention of the individual, right? Yes. Like there is a yeah. real, like yes. we are two states of nature deep now. And the end <laughs> of the second one is the creation of the individual who is bitter and, and cruel post mm-hmm. state of nature. You know, we're, we're a little more, Rousseau, right, than Locke or something. But, like, Rousseau didn't account, didn't really have the big computer uh, gods helping us. That was not really in the in the way he wrote about it. <laughs> Would have been better. Well, it, and, you know, th- this is something, too, that comes kind of comes up in Castle of the Otter. And in a few interviews uh, that I've read with Wolf from, again, later in his life, is that I get a very strong sense uh, that that Gene Wolfe believed in a historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And, and, yeah. and, and, you know, I say that in a very, uh, you know, uh, specific way because there, there are a couple ways of thinking about the history of Christianity, one of which is that Jesus is a kind of composite character right. of a lot of different people in, uh, across many dozens of years and that, you know, that Jesus is more of a figure that gets produced out of Christ- early Christianity than he is like a dude who lived, right? And if he was a dude who lived, certainly he's gotten a bunch of stuff piled on him, right? The flip is that there is a historical Jesus <laughs> and um, he is a definable c- figure in time who had a lot of things happen around him, some of which are explicable and some of which are not. And you can be kind of a 
uh, rationalist about that and, you know, say that mythology spun up around this historical figure, or you can be a, you know, believer in the historical Jesus to say he was a person who lived in time and had miracles happen or whatever, right? But I, I, getting a sense of how Wolf talks about the Book of the New Sun and how he talks about Christianity, I think this thing that we're seeing in the story is how Gene Wolfe sees the history of Christianity very specifically, mm-hmm. which is like there are things that happened and there are breakages and interpretations that have happened, but they are rooted in some event that has been weaved through myth and time, you know, and thinking back about the student and his creation and all that stuff, you know, the story mm-hmm. from, from a couple times ago. So I, I think that that's something that inflects how how to to read these books or how I read these books, not how someone has to, mm-hmm. which is like Gene Wolfe is really invested in thinking about how real historical events get warped by myth and time. Because you can see exactly what you're saying here. You know, Austin is like, we're getting a story of how we came to be or how the humans mm-hmm. of Severian's time came to be. And it's just as much about the output as it is like actually talking the history here, right? Um, because the output here is the autocracy. Ah, this is the origin myth for the autocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, that there was something before and the autark has in, in his infinite wisdom, because she also does that thing that the commoners do, right? You mm-hmm. know, uh, when she mentions the autark, he gets his own little uh, yeah, booster yeah. here. Um, that this is a, you know, valorization story that the autark made the right decision to take all the the, the creation stories and hammer them into the same archive. So, mm-hmm. um you know, I, that's just something maybe to, to poke in here because it, it is going to matter quite a bit in the last book of the Book of the New Sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they hook up. Uh, gotta, actually, then there's a banger final line of this of this chapter, which is, is which is, you know, um, uh, he explains to her the Apu Punch-Out stuff. He, she's like, now you tell me a story, right? Because they're like... Mm-hmm. They're flirting and kissing and making out. Like, they're, like, telling stories, right? And so he explains the stuff that happened at the end of the last book. And we, again, we didn't even talk about it, but here we are again at the beginning of a new book, and there was another time jump, right? And another, like, what's the new situation we're in? Let's figure it out. That's just what Gene does, so we didn't even spend any time on it. But here we are seven chapters in, and uh, he explains that, you know, oh, we went to this deserted city. There was a fire. There were some witches. They wanted us to do this thing. You've, you know about necromancy. You know about necromancy. Well, let me tell you about the, the new mancy on the block. Vivamancy. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's those who live among the dead but call people who are alive to them to make them live again. Is this this is so cool. This is the coolest. I, I have shoot. not mis- yeah. misrepresented this. Yes. No. This is yeah. There are figures who are dead. Yes. Who who do the opposite of a necromancer and pull those who might resurrect them to them. Which only works if you think of death as something different <laughs> than what we think of <laughs> death is normally. A thing I say out loud because that is a big part of the later Dorcas Severian conversation, right? Yeah. If to be dead is to still if. if inside of the set of people who are dead is a subset of people who can act, then death is not the thing we think it, it is, right? Um, yes. Right? Is, yes. Uh, if if per, perhaps you imagine that it, at some point everyone will be resurrected and perhaps. Uh, brought into some sort of kingdom. Exactly. Then, then all of this starts to right. line up. Yeah. Right. Um, but, and, and so he yeah, explains so, that that's what Apu Panchao perhaps yes. was that though yeah. we, when we read that, that, uh, uh, you know, encounter earlier, it seemed like the witches were doing a thing that then, uh, Severian and, and his, his group were caught up in. 
it seems actually now in retrospect, Apu Punchau was calling them to him to resurrect him in a way. And with him, again, there's like a this is a Kingfisher thing, right? Where like Apu Punchau and the city itself are one in the same in some way, right? Like he gets resurrected along with the town. Well, Apu Punchau kind of has his context, and he doesn't right. make sense without his context. Right. And so right. his context has to come with him. It's it's an invert of our symbols make us, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we we make our symbols. We make the con- the context in which we live. And so, because uh, he says, uh, in this framework, if you think about it this way, then the city, walking through the ruined city, is walking through Apu Punchau's bones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's right. all him. Um, and Syriaca is like, no, wait a second. I think you're the witch. I think you're the witch, and and the sick person was your client, and the woman who you were with is your servant. And he's like, no, 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 no. I just left some stuff out. You're confused. And then the claw of the conciliator pushes against his breastbone again, being like, dude, you gotta you gotta pay attention to the the book you're writing. You have to pay attention to the stories you're telling. Um, uh, mm. and almost like some sort of companion almost perhaps mm-hmm. yes mm. interesting you could, you could mm. draw that line um, mm. uh, anyway I'm getting the, the part of this that I think bangs which is um, he asks he's like anyway the point is uh, when all the ghosts disappeared uh, there was a there was a cape of a pelerine left behind like the one that you're you're wearing I have it with me in my in my little bag in my little fanny pack Um do do the do the pelerines do necromancy? And then the, this chapter ends with, I never heard the answer to my question, for just as I spoke, the tall figure of the Archon came up, the narrow path that led to the fountain. He was masked and costumed as a bar guest, so that I would not have known him if I had seen him in good light. But the dimness of the garden stripped his disguise from him as effectively as human hands could have, so that, I, so that as soon as I saw the loom of his height and his walk, I knew him at once. Ah, he said. You found her. I ought to have anticipated that. I thought so, I told him, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, Banger. so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, there's also, that whole section there is also a great mirror because it mirrors the kid who saw Thecla in the darkness. The kid who saw Thecla in the darkness. I don't remember in, this. In the, this. In the prison, in mm-hmm. the prison, in right? So oh, the kid is right. like, I saw a woman walking here, right? right? It's the same thing, that when detail gets stripped away, you get to see someone's truth. Right. And inside of Severian is Thecla. Is right? Thecla, so you get to see right. That truth. And the same thing happens here. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, and, and just to be clear to the person who's listening to our podcast but maybe not reading along, the thing that is happening here is the archon is like, oh yeah, that's the woman, the woman you've been hooking up with and telling stories with. That's the woman I need you to throw off a cliff for me. <laughs> um, and hey, no, let's get it right. He's supposed to strangle her and throw her in the river. Okay, well, whatever. Accuracy matters. Also, I thought he explicitly said like, don't you don't you throw people out windows? Couldn't you could you throw someone out a window? He's just thinking about that. No, he <laughs> that's says separate. he says that's that's under that's an unrelated <laughs> okay. uh, throwing out the window. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's supposed to throw her in the river. Gotcha. Right. Well, I love that. That's I mean, like, and if you're reading along, you and you have a sense of irony. You know, in your heart of hearts, that that's where this has to be going. But mm-hmm. the the reveal of it is just very good. So, right. Uh, one other thing, then, if we're talking about mm-hmm. like Thecla being in Severian, I just want to point out that when uh, Severian is hooking up with Syriaca, he is kind of helpless not to think about all of the trysts that Thecla has had. 
Like right. that is a thing that comes to him. And I think that's very interesting, especially since uh, immediately after they do shack up, uh, they have to go wash. They go to like a pool and there are two women already in the pool together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are these are not, I think, the directions that Gene would want us to take. But there's a uh, uh, sort of other redoublings happen and sort of crucially, mm-hmm. uh, the girls giggle. They like see this man and woman come in together and they're like giggling and Severian like threatens them with his uh, uh, bearing or demeanor or whatever. He says something like once they realized I would not spare them because they were women, they like left. So he doesn't like when women laugh at him. This also evokes uh, uh, Thecla calling him uh, her boy lover uh, back before he gives her the knife. And in fact, uh, I wanted to point that out back when it happened. But when uh, he takes the Alzabo. And he first like uh, like the stream of consciousness switches over into Thecla's narration like that is how she thinks of him is my boy lover Severian. So there's a a, again, if we want to like think about uh, the relationship with women here, there's something about uh, older women, women with authority, women who might uh, laugh at you uh, or demean you, belittle you for being a man in some way. And uh, Severian's reflexive uh need to kind of uh front when he feels like a woman has gotten the better half of him or the better part of him mm-hmm. no yeah, one gets the, the better half of him because i don't know that yeah. he has a better half <laughs> well and we get a really explicit parallel with that right with the old man who's watching him talk to the the kid the sick kids basically oh, right and and severian says if he had spit I would have killed him, basically, yes. right? You know, if he if he'd spit on the ground, and when Severian, because Severian gets really shaken by that whole encounter, and then leaves, and he hears the man spit behind him, and he doesn't do anything, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's partially because he's so rattled or whatever. But there's something going on here with respect and who gives it to him, and Severian's threshold for that for women is extremely low, mm-hmm. like extremely, extremely low. And uh, I think in in this section too, right, uh, Dorcas, it's a little unclear what Dorcas is referring to, but uh, in that conversation, it seems like she is referring to the rape of uh, Jolenta as well, mm-hmm. you know, because because she says something like, well, if you remember being in the house absolute, then you need to remember, and she kind of trails off. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, is this what you've marked in the notes? Yeah, it's like 61, yeah. I wasn't entirely sure what you were hoping to point out here because of the way you wrote it, and I'm like so rotted by popular culture that I could only hear it as a family guy bit. Like, holy (laughs) crap, Lois, you remember that time in the house absolute? I I did just write, remember that time in the house. (laughs) Yeah, that's what you wrote, so. Yeah, yeah, that that is on me. No! Oh, I need the fan art now. I need to know. Oh, um, no, Brian is Triskel. I can't do this. <laughs> oh, yeah. So so this is it. This is it. Uh, it is 61. Remember that time? Yeah. Um, Dorcas is like giving the explanation of why she wants to go south. My child may still be alive, an old man perhaps, but still alive. I have to know. Yes, I said. But I could not help adding, there was a time when you told me I was not death, that I must not let others persuade me to think of myself in that way. It was behind the orchard on the grounds of the house absolute. Do you remember? You have been death to me, she said. I have succumbed to the trap I warned you of, if you like. Perhaps if you are not death, but you will remain what you are, a a torturer and a carnifex, and your hands will run with blood. Since you remember that time in the House Absolute so well, perhaps you, and ellipses, I can't say it. The conciliator or the claw or the increate has done this to me, not you. 
So I think that's an explicit mm. reference back to, or not actually, it's definitively not explicit. Okay. It's an implicit reference back to the rape of Jolinda. If you remember this this conversation we had so well, do you remember what you did right after yeah. that? Yeah. Um. I, I, you know, and so Severian's relationship to women is all over this whole thing, right? Um. And this is part of why this Dorcas stuff hits, right? Is like, and she's right. saying the shit that you know she knows. She is not yes. playing yes. the waif anymore, right? And, yeah. and to some degree, it retroactively makes you wonder how much of it was her biting her tongue and for what reason was she biting her tongue, mm-hmm. right? Well, because I think she thought she loved Severian. Yeah. Uh, and right. she wasn't a person, right? She says at the beginning <laughs> yes. of this thing, she lost herself. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, I don't think she had like kind of full capacity. Well, we memory. saw that with the Ulan. When 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 the yeah. Ulan gets brought back, he's like, I don't, like, who are you? Where am I? What's going on? Right. Um, and we part of what we see here is that that can happen repeatedly. Um, yeah. uh, when she sees the chair and realizes what she is, she we learn she coughs up the lead that was put in her belly to weigh her down, right? Yeah. It had been in there that whole time. Why didn't she spew it out before? Because she hadn't, it hadn't triggered in that way, right? Like mm-hmm. it hadn't, this part of the passage of re-becoming a person hadn't occurred yet. Um, and so like, yeah, when you start thinking about it in this kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, she was dead and then she's alive. And instead mm-hmm. start thinking about death and life as continuity. This is one of the affordances that provides <laughs> is that that whole period is one in which she wasn't quite a, the person she once was yet, you know? Mm-hmm. And then she spent weeks or months alongside the claw, which she now theorizes, returns you to a different version of yourself, right? Mm. Um, And so in some ways you could imagine that she has been healing her way back to not just breathing, but to the person who was, who sold that chair or who owned that chair Mm. or whatever, right? Um, Michael, is there a is there some reason that the lead is is stamped with the word strike? Uh, I don't know about that. Okay. It, it just feels like some weird classical mm-hmm. reference that I wouldn't get. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like it has weight. Haha, wait. But it feels like it has some reason, and, and I thought maybe. That just feels like a thing you would know yeah. if it did. I mean, it is It is kind of a Michael Lutz corner of stuff, but. Right. Uh, yeah. I'm just a quick search here i am not finding anything i just sort of assumed that it is uh maybe some mark of uh like production right right Right. like 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 whatever like the stuff is coming out of the forge and they stamp this on it to show something about it right a mark of quality or like it's it's led for a particular use that may be Mm -hmm. weighing down corpses but maybe it's about uh shoving it into a cannon too i don't know yeah, because she also calls it shot, right? right. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, you know, I think in my mind when I read this originally, I thought, you know, it's like, oh, just like big pieces of lead, like drips of lead that you mm-hmm. would make by like dripping it into water or whatever from a from a forge, pouring it into water. But thinking about it, it's like maybe ball bearings. Yes. So I wonder, yeah. is it from like a pinball machine? Mm-hmm. Like it could yeah. be. They cracked open the last Sopranos pinball machine and. <laughs> That's right. In my local arcade, there's a Dolly Parton pinball machine. Oh, yeah. What's it? What's it do? Uh, well, there's Dolly, and she's got big hair. Yeah, and you play the pinball, and it's like impossible to lose. Oh, it's always impossible to lose with Dolly. That's right. It's the <laughs> infinite joy with, with Dolly. Um, so we get the thing, and yeah, the last thing talking about the kind of revisiting of the the way that Severian uh, interacts with women here is. 
the line that you read, Austin, reveals that Severian's been having sex with this woman and flirting and trading stories mm-hmm. the whole time knowing that he's supposed to strangle her. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But you're like, I'm pretty sure this is the woman I'm supposed to strangle. Yep. Won't stop me from hooking up with her. So we get a really cool time Which split also, here. she, yeah, okay, we do. So I'll say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, let me say this bit right now. When we yeah, come back right. to this, the thing that she says to him, it, one of the things she says to him is like, uh, when we come back to this, he decides to let her go. We, 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 no, we no, learn. Let, let me just explain the time split yeah, and then we'll, yes. let's just actually yeah, yeah, yeah. do it linearly, right? Okay. So the time split that happens is that um, after this scene, in the next chapter, we get Severian leaving and we don't find out what happened in the middle until later on. But um, what actually happens in the middle it's is It's pretty clear, that, though. I think it's pretty clear right away. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's unclear, like... Did he murder her the wrong way? That That's a part for me. I, it's mm. unclear. Reading this okay. thing this time, I wasn't like, oh, he definitely let her go. Um, the first time I read this through, I was like, oh, he let her go. He couldn't bring himself yeah. to do it, um, which is what it was, right? Yeah, that um, is what it was. Uh, and I, I was surprised the first time reading this through that we even went back because I thought it was pretty clear that that he was alighting that he let her go but but again you're right it is not it is not explicit as before it is well this is like a you know this is a whole world that is like around will and desire and specificity or whatever and i can imagine a world in which you know um severian just did a thing i mean i thought what had happened was a repeat of thecla Right. That he had Which given like, her uh, an easier death somehow. Right, sure. right. An out that was in... I thought this was just a rerun of the beginning of the book. In reality, it is a rerun of the beginning of the book, right? right? right. It, but it's a rerun of, like, doing it the right way this time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, quote, quote, unquote. Right. The thing I want to hit before we move on to the specific de- details of it is about the relationship with women, which is why I wanted to try to yeah. sneak this in, which is yeah, sure. she says, hey, you're not just pretending to let me go because... Uh, as an extra torture, right? Because that would be fucked up, dude. And he says, no, we never do that. That's a thing that other types of, that's a thing that clergy do is basically what he says, right? That (laughs) like people who are not real torturers, but who are assigned duties like this will do to like really rub it in. But we would never do that. But I think it's fascinating. He doesn't understand that sleeping with someone ahead of strangling them to death is, is the same thing. Right. He doesn't conceptualize that giving someone pleasure or taking them on, you know, you know, in confidence. Right. um, Is itself torturous if the thing that you're going to do right after that is strangle her, which he is planning to do until the moment he doesn't. Right. It's not like he has decided at the moment that they first sleep together. Oh, I'm not going to kill this woman. You know, he makes it starts, doesn't he? Doesn't he start strangling her? And then Thecla, and makes, then, him then Thecla yeah. makes him stop. Yeah, right. Yeah. So like, it it's interesting that he he can't conceive of those two things being actually similar. And in fact, perhaps sleeping with her is actually worse than simply saying, "Oh, I'm going to let you go," and then killing her. You know, he can't yeah, get and, there. And we already know that you can do a little bit of lying mm-hmm. uh, because you know mm-hmm. he told Agilus, you know, basically on three. Yep. And then <laughs> you know you do it on two. Yes. So, like, you know, as long as it doesn't impact the outcome, yeah. you, can, you can tell a little fib all day long. Yeah. I think the other, like, little important detail here is that this thing begins with him specifically saying, I was now in the position of Master Gurlos back in the Citadel, and we've already had Gurlos as kind of this yeah. object of, yeah. like, on the one hand, I've become my cool uncle. Uh, I'm I'm big badass cop in Country City. Right. 
Uh, and also uh, the whole thing about uh, Gerlo's being ordered to rape or sexually assault uh, a client and Severian's ruminations upon that. And now that is is sort of rebounding here with all the stuff going on with Syriaca. Right. Definitely. Well, and then and then right. The the stuff with Gerlo is also being like a coward, quote yes. unquote. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, but yes, the way it actually happens is that we don't come back to Syriaca for a few chapters. We we go from him recognizing that, oh yeah, this is the woman I'm supposed to kill, huh? To him moving back through the city, right? Uh the next page starts with like, I left the palace grounds uh, by one of the landward gates. And uh he immediately decides that he is being chased. He is being pursued by the men of the... <laughs> they must all be looking for They're me. all looking for me right now. <laughs> the Arkham's men are hot on my heels. He's literally just talked to these guys like two seconds ago. <laughs> and they're like, hey, you sure you don't want someone to go with you? He's like, no, I'm good. I'm good, actually. And as soon as they are out of eyesight... Oh he God, is walking around me. the city going, dun, 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 <laughs> to himself in his head like a 12-year-old who just saw Mission Impossible and is pretending yeah. to be a spy. Yeah, I do that now. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's fun to do. <laughs> yeah. Because the thing he did was just kind of like let her – the Archon must have been like, all right, go do the stuff by the river. All right, good. You got her. Bring her to the river. Do it. And then he doesn't do it, which we'll read about later. And and then no one knows. But he in his mind, you know, they're fucking moving on him now, right? Like <laughs> the word is spreading through the city that he's betrayed the Archon and they must arrest him immediately. And so we get him par- like moving paranoid through the city and trying to like figure out how to like, you know, right all his wrongs before he escapes to the north dramatically. And he is being pursued is the thing. He's being pursued by a little old man dragon with a flower yeah. for a head. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we're the someone's been burning people. Like I said, it's just like a Spider-Man. Content, it is. You know, or, you know, like an issue where it's like someone's been throwing people down in a sewer and stealing their shirts. <laughs> uh, I hope I don't have to deal with that later. I hope there's not some sort of lizard. <laughs> yeah. I hope it's not the shirt stealer uh, or, you know, or whatever. But yeah, so this thing is following him around. And yeah, it like. Sorry, I thought that you were making a Kurt Connors, uh, the lizard <laughs> reference, because he has, the lizard wears the ripped, like, lab coat uh, uh, yes. of, and in my mind, you were like, the lizard's constantly stealing people's shirts. <laughs> Looking for the one that fits? I need one that fits my new lizardy form, uh. Spider-Man. Peter, you know I don't want to do this, but my new lizard form is making me steal shirts. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, look, what you just said is as good as most spider <laughs> <laughs> They would really help me regulate my new body temperature. <laughs> I'm cold-blooded now, Pete. <laughs> I can fix you, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be this way. We'll take you to I the big and tall. <laughs> <laughs> no. I need the I, I need the ancient styles. <laughs> the styles of yesteryear. Spider-Man. Uh, but, uh, no, but they, uh, this thing's following him around. It's like, looks like a, looking like a little old man. And it, yeah, it, it's called the salamander. We learn it's called the salamander. 
Uh, and salamander, of course, like hearkening back to Greek myth, mm -hmm. right? Like the you know fire breathing, all this kind of stuff. But it, it seems to be like this little critter that that uh, is is blind. It has like no visual or very little visual capability, and it's like scuttling around. And it opens up its head, and it's basically like a jet engine. Mm -hmm. Like it's it is fire so fiery that it like bla it, it blasts the flesh off your skeleton and like leaves bones and ash behind. Um, and it's just like scuttling around the city, burning the hell out of people. And it gets after Severian. How haven't we fought this thing in like Blight Town? Four or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. FromSoft, get on this. I need the little old man who turns into a flower dragon and then jet engines my face off. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a good visual. We keep talking about it as a little old man. But again, if you're not reading along, that is specifically how it is described <laughs> as like, it, yeah. if you, you see it in the dark and it's like the silhouette of a short little old man. Mm -hmm. And then the way, yeah, Cameron uh, is exactly right. Like a jet engine. Like if you could just imagine like the turbine spinning up and suddenly yeah. there's like yeah. fire there. Uh -huh. Yeah, and it's it, it, the the one scene. It, uh, Wolf doesn't write horror all that often, but there is a straight up horror scene that's going on here. That's legit. I mean, he does. He has like whole horror novels. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's not. Mm -hmm. to, but in these books specifically, there's not a lot of like straight horror. And there's a thing here where he's like, and I was running through, and I ended up in like a little, you know, little cul-de-sac, and oh my god, there's a little old man over there. <laughs> And it's and it's like that's the salamander, and you're looking at this, and you're like, oh my god, this is the Baba Duke. Yeah, <laughs> Gene Wolfe invented the Baba Duke. <laughs> the bit here where it's like, um, the the it's coming for him, and then the two knights or whatever show up, which he of course is like, they were coming for me, but the salamander <laughs> was in the way, um, yeah. and they kind of like try to laser gun it or whatever, and then it turned towards the light whatever it was, and seemed to open as a flower might, growing tall more swiftly almost than the eye could follow it, thinning until it had become a creature of glowing gauze, hot yet somehow reptilian, as those many-colored serpents we see brought from the jungles of the north are reptilian still, though they seem, works, seem to be works of colored enamel. Uh, the mounts of the soldiers reared and screamed, but one of the men, with, with more presence of mind than I would have shown, fired his lance into the heart of the thing that faced him. There was a flare of light. Uh, incredible. Great descriptions throughout all this. It, it just, it's rad. All of this stuff is great. Mm -hmm. And then it blasts the flesh off their bones. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like, a, like a, yeah. It seemed a reptile still, but a reptile that burned in a way never known on Earth, as though some desert asp had dropped into a sphere of snow. The, the second was of a raggedness fluttering in a wind that was not of air. It seemed to blossom still, but it was a blossom whose petals of white and pale yellow and flame had been tattered by some monstrous tempest born in its own heat. Yeah, dude, you got to get out of here. <laughs> and yeah, you don't want to deal with it. And then he runs away. And well, it goes out like a chump. Well, it does oh, go out like so a chump. But it gets it, a Looney Tunes death. <laughs> it does. does. What it does. Is, is that happen in the house he runs through? Because I've yes. never seen Severian. We talk about Master Gurlos, or he talks about Master Gurlos being a coward. This is the most... You know what? I, I'm not shit. I talk big game. I I don't have game. I'm getting out of here. I threw I threw my sword away. I ran through someone's apartment. I woke everybody up. It, <laughs> yeah. So he runs through the apartment, and he's got he has terminus est with him. Yes. He runs through the apartment, and uh, he hears the salamander follow him. And it's an apartment that's like you know made of 
like you know thatched roof cottage stuff yeah right? he's like run into like sort of the poorer part of the city yeah and it's hanging out over the city you know it's it's like uh kind of like a big uh riven style yeah <laughs> you know thing that's like hanging out over nothing and he's uh, run into a house he, that has a big note on it that says extremely flammable <laughs> right and and he's standing there and he's like uh-oh i could jump out the window you know and die mm-hmm. you know because we already talked about this before it's already come up before if you throw someone from this height they're dead mm-hmm. you know that's what the, the the archon was talking about earlier and he and he looks back and he's like uh-oh the salamander's here and all the people who live here are waking up and are getting obliterated by the salamander and then he's then he th- that's the moment where he throws terminus s to the side and he's like well I hope it won't get destroyed in the way that I'm getting destroyed. And then the salamander uh, turns. He it, like throws a woman down in front of itself and looks at the ground and like blasts through the the thatched roof cottage bottom uh, in order to, you know, to turn her into dust. And then it charges Severian and falls through the very floor that it had just blasted that woman from. Yeah, and it, like, know, falls Is that true? Yeah, that's what happens. Please no, because it says yeah. light from below. Oh, you're right. Yeah, it, yeah. That's it, he, so he watches it fall and it changes color. It, yeah, yeah, it like falls down and hits the ground and goes like poof, and it's like <laughs> multicolored like sparkles fly up. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, so it burns a hole in the floor and then it falls through the, it, like, the hole. Right, in the floor light it from below yeah. flash through the hole that it had burned in the flimsy floor. Yeah. Incredible! Yeah. What a lucky jerk. <laughs> Just luck. Yeah. Yep, no skill, all luck. Well, or or uh, sorry, this might be the uh, teleological pull of uh, being the main character of history. Yeah, maybe. maybe. <laughs> He's got the main Could character be. gem on his around his neck. I don't and know it what keeps it keeps thumping do. him. It keeps thumping him. It keeps telling him you gotta be more like the main character. Be the good guy. Or be <laughs> be this particular type of guy that I've decided is the good guy. <laughs> Well, and it's worth thinking about, too. I mean, we keep joking about main character stuff, but but it really does kind of matter because it, the, if the example of Apu Panchao yes. is that some some things have so much gravity to them that they will retroactively in the past and future rip, the, you know, they will change the shape of reality to bring themselves into being. Right, right. No, this the being is, the main character might matter. Well, this is uh, yeah, no, no, no. I'm not joking. Like, I, yeah, yeah. The the but I, we are an, being, an audience member might hear that correct. and be like, oh, sorry, ha, ha, main character. We are being team, presented but. a cosmology in which there are yeah. authors of history, and if there are yeah. and and it's being told to us by someone who is writing a, his memoirs, which are supposed to serve as objective history about how he became the Altark, right? Um, and and if that's true, and if some people can write in this register, the register of death, if they can pr- if they can make history happen after they're dead, then we have to think about Severian in that mode of storytelling and and that that mode of storytelling is a determinant of mm-hmm. what follows. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, what, and we know that the superpower of the conciliator, it's all the things that the claw can do, right? Because right. it's like right. this kind of storehouse. And the other thing we know about the conciliator which the claw has not yet done, as far as we know, is that he always appears in the weirdest places at the weirdest times. Right. Inappropriate so, times. Inappropriate times. And so literally he like being the conciliator also has main character energy. Correct. And that it just seems like he appears and stuff happens, right? I would note that isn't it weird that this thing burned a hole and walked right through. This it? is what I mean. And, 
right. And the thing is so statistically unlikely or whatever, right? But it's it's the, if the if the claw has a power, and one of the conciliators' powers is to draw improbabilities together, right? We might be seeing the conciliator at work here. Well, and then this comes to me. This comes back to Agilus being like, dude, there's a logic to the world, and you're breaking the logic. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, don't so you maybe, maybe that wasn't bullshit. Right. right? Maybe right. he was right. Yes. Um, and, and I think that, again, this comes back to the, also the stuff that we're about to learn about. I guess we already learned the word vivamancy, right? Because that was yeah. him explaining it to, yeah. to uh, Syriaca. But then it, when we following this, he goes, he gets, by the way, during all of this, he has been holding the constantly fainting body of the proprietress of the, uh, the, whatever the duck's nest nest, to the duck's nest uh where dorcas was was at he finds his way back to her um uh to have this big breakup conversation basically (laughs) she's breaking up with him but uh, or is he breaking up with her who could say um but um in that conversation is where the stuff that we already talked about regarding like the nature of death and does death really exist uh if in the way that we think of it and between those two conversations, the one about vivamancy and the one about um, death being, specifically the claw being about time travel more than it's about healing, that what it's really doing is returning you to a particular form that you used to be. Um, it's what it's theoretically is what it did to Jonas. It's theoretically, it's what it did to Jolenta. And then the complexity of that being when you return Jolenta's form to what it was before, and this doesn't say this explicitly, right? But if you return her form to what it was before, but the machines or whatever, the glamour is still in there, that's fatal. If you return Jonas to what he was before, but the flesh is still in there, you know, like that's not that's not good for him, actually. Um, I love the, the way that – thinking about that and thinking about conciliation – in those terms, is really uh, kind of eye-opening around a lot of the events of the book for me, or the books Mm -hmm. so far for me. That, like, the thing that that the claw has been doing is not healing people. It's returning them to a more, a previous form. It lines up with a lot of what we've heard around the way Severian thinks about nature or something, right? One's nature, what's what's true Mm -hmm. and good. But that that can be fatal, (laughs) Um, but then also that death is not a one-way street, right? Right. And a little bit that I was pushing on, I think, last time, right, of what if conciliation is might be a fundamentally conservative force. Right. right? 100%. Mm-hmm. It's a return. It, it, and I mean, I mean conservative in the literal sense of the term, yes. right? Like yes. it, it, That it conserves and returns rather than produces new. If you were um, born blind, the, the claw of the conciliator will not return sight to you. You were never you never had sight to begin with, or not give it you sight. Doesn't seem like it would, right? right. Or yeah. like that in the reading that that this suggests, at least, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it is not a force for change except for return. Mm-hmm. Michael, what do you think about all of this conciliator talk? Uh, nothing much. <laughs> are y'all poisoned by knowledge? Y'all are poisoned by knowledge. <laughs> yeah, God damn it. yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Of course we are. Yeah, I, well, I, I wish hey, I could take the, the claw and put it to your head to clear hey, you of the thing knowledge. There's this thing called the conciliator. There's this thing called the conciliator, and which is fundamentally, in some ways, a conservative, conserving and conser- conservative force. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this thing called the book of the new sun. Mm-hmm. Huh? <laughs> it's, I wonder how we square that circle. Uh-huh. 
Well, we also learned that there's another name for the first time here of the another name for yeah. it, right? Is this is this the the dark sun? Is that in here? What, what's, I think it's the black sun. The black, black sun. sun. Yeah, that's what it yeah. is. Like some sort of black call. <laughs> oh, I see. Hmm. Patreon.com slash range touch. <laughs> Patreon.com slash range touch to listen to our episode about the Incol mm-hmm. and the, you know, um, strange alliance between the Incol and Book of the New Sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but yeah, we, we do, we do learn that. Um, and we don't get much more about any of that stuff, weirdly enough, here. Wait, yeah. uh, we get, so one of the things that, um, mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it's it's just worth pointing out that uh, I think yeah. it's Syriaca refers to the Autark as the Viceroy of the New Sun. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's, I love that. Like that's yeah. another Viceroy. right? That's that's sort of a a clearer kind of uh, a point about the relationship between the state of governance and this part like weird diffuse religion thing. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, they're more clearly aligned here than they have been in the past. Yeah, so if Kakujins control the Autark, mm-hmm. and the Autark is the Viceroy of the New Sun, is the the notion of a New Sun a Kakujin-oriented thing? Maybe, but we also have... Hard to know. We also have um, uh, the play from last time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. In which we have an Autark trying to push off the New Sun from coming. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. So, complicated. Mm-hmm. Well, but we also know that the Autark, the current Autark, is a double agent for Votalis. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or the other way. Or Votalis is a is a uh, is being fed false information from yeah, maybe. the Autark in such a way that he is also being manipulated. It's it's a mess. Hard to know. Again, the ink call uh, very similar <laughs> on some of these. If there's a thing that I could say about uh, uh, Earth, mm-hmm. you know, U R T H. It's a mess. Everyone on the Anarchist Council is a double agent. Oops. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe on the other side of Earth, everything's fine. It's not a big deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? There isn't, yeah. It's all good over there. Everyone over there mm-hmm. is just chilling. There's just like hyper advanced, like it's just normal China. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, but, yeah. but just like, you know, 10 billion years in the future, they're doing the same stuff, you know, having a good time. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone is like eating food and uh, there's not mass executions, nothing. It's just a regular society just operating. Regular, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you totally. never know. The, uh, the a thing to note here, uh, speaking of the location where this takes place, right? We are slowly, as far as we know, if if we align this with our real, our Earth, we are kind of creeping up South America, which would mean that Thrax is kind of the foothills into the big mountains of the Andes. Sure. And so Severian explicitly says, you go to the top of Thrax, you know, the, the big top of it, uh, you know, way above the, the river, and you look at the river, and it's all the way down there. And then you turn around, and you look the other way, and it makes, you know, like the mountains are so big, it looks like the earth has been, yeah. you know, uh, uh, warped in some way. So so where Severian's about to go north, that's where this chapter, or the reading ends, and he is about to go into the mountains. Mm-hmm. And not just like some mountains, but the mountains. Mm-hmm. After escaping uh, through the prison where he pulls out his magic little gem and heals everyone so they can be healthier while they're still in prison. That's uh, so funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, basically, in terms of let, let's just uh, shore up the gap here. 
Defeats the salamander, goes back to the thing, has all the conversations with Dorcas we've talked about so far. Or I guess Dorcas, before he does that, does he already save the girl? Because he or has he only made the decision to be a to to stop being a torturer at this point? It's he has already saved her. It, yeah. All of that stuff that with saving her happens all at one time before he leaves. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just told out of order. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so we she's already been sent down river. Uh-huh. Similarly, he goes back. All all of Severian's uh, various women in his life are abandoning him for the river. You know, (laughs) it happens to every man at some point in your life when, uh, you know, romantic partners, people you're torturing, Mm -hmm. uh, people you are planning to murder. They just begin uh, doing what we call uh, river time, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's a part of everyone growing up. We don't talk about that enough that Korean War veterans often experience river time when they got back. (laughs) The latest TikTok trend is river time. (laughs) First, there was girl dinner. Yep. Now, now, river, river time. time. Where women cut their hair and, and uh, turn to the river. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so he sends Syriaca down the river, and he believes... Because literally, he not sees, metaphorically. He no, yes, literally. Yeah, yeah, this is not a turn of phrase. Literally <laughs> sends her down the river. Positive. And then, yeah. yes, positive. Yeah, down the river, up, uh, as opposed to down the river, down. And... Uh, he sees that the gate for the river going north has been closed. And he goes, uh-oh, they must have caught her, you know, trying to flee. He talks to Dorcas. They have all the conversations we talked about. Dorcas also leaves. He gives her the money that they have from Dr. Talos's play. She gets in the boat. She goes to Nessus, never to be seen again, <laughs> you know, in terms of what we know so far. Oh, no, he says, he says it'll be quite some time before I see her again. He does. Yeah. So there will be. So it is not never to be seen again. Right, right. right. He does give us some narration. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then uh, he decides to go north and does the thing that Michael is talking about, where since the gate of the river is closed, he can't just like get, he can't go north by land. Mm-hmm. So he needs to go through the mountain, and he goes through the mountain by going to the prison and sending all the water down. He uses the word. He has the word for yeah, the. Yeah, he the, has the word. Which, which is not to say he says like, open the gate, and someone up there goes like, well, what's the word? He has the voice. He says Siri. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, Delta yes. twenty seven. Open the gate, and you know, Delta twenty seven confirmed, and then it opens or whatever. Yeah, my voice yeah, is my a, passport. You know. Yeah, it's a great little moment there. Uh, it, well, the the shirt is the badge, but. Uh, <laughs> They, um, and then he goes through the thing and yeah, like you said, Michael, he, he walks through the prison, making everyone buff as shit the whole way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and then <laughs> the guards show up later and they're like, man, is it just me or all the prisoners looking kind of hot suddenly? <laughs> the, the prisoners, the ripped to shit. <laughs> um, and then he crawls down in a very, uh, Michael, you'll re- remember this, a very reminiscent of the running man scenario, <laughs> the novel for the running man. Climbs through the sewer in a very uncomfortable way and then cracks through the gate at the bo- the other end or the grate at the other end and mm-hmm. then makes his way north past all the guards. Yep. There are two claw things I want to I want to just briefly touch on. One is. Oh, wait, is this our sub podcast? Claw talk? Claw talk. Uh, okay. uh-huh. One. All right. When he uses it on the little girl and gives her a face instead of a, basically a skull uh, healing her, <laughs> uh, she sees him as being super colorful mm-hmm. right yeah we get like she a, sees him as wearing white he's he's gandolfing mm-hmm. no i think she, i think i think he's technicolor dream coating 
Ooh, you think so? Oh yeah, because doesn't she explicitly? I think it's specifically. I guess she she says he's. I mean, bright. white is all the colors, bright, so that you're right. you know you're it right. would all make sense. Yes, um, uh, bright clothing is is what is what she she describes him as, as having yeah, yeah. worn. So you're right. You're, you're maybe it is maybe it is just white. The second thing that I am really interested in uh, is the bit where it is. He says at the very end of this that when he's going through the prison, he holds it up, the club. It's never it, – it is the most that he's ever seen it glow, right? It glows mm-hmm. more strongly than it will, will ever glow again basically, um, which is like – it's just a, it's just mechanistic, right? It's that it's that the, uh, the, the repair that it's doing, it's that the, the magic that it's doing is in a direct inverse proportion to the suffering in front of it. Um, uh, that people are there's so many people and such you know pain gathered here, such death and such sickness and illness gathered here that it has to glow a lot in order to heal them. Um, and I, the fact that though that that is the relationship to make it glow the most, you have to present it with uh, the most suffering imaginable. Mm-hmm. Is I think. Uh, why I'm not Catholic anymore. <laughs> yeah, the glory of the miracle only makes sense in the context in which it's in. Right, and the and the greater yeah. the suffering, the greater the miracle. Right. Yes. Um is is I think that is it might be definitive to a miracle. <laughs> yes. Yes. A hundred <laughs> yeah. or at least to this version of of you know of miracle, right? Well, um, I'm just thinking about the history of miracles. Right, it seems 100%. like the ones that are most important are the ones uh, I, that are, you know. I'm cognizant of my limits, which is that I know that many religions have miracles. Oh, uh, right. and maybe in other and maybe in other faiths, miracles can happen that are not so deeply connected to suffering and are yeah. instead connected to the in, in you know the the uh, uh, strange time that something happened, or maybe the other half of the of the conciliator thing of it was a weird time for this to happen, uh, but it happened in this strange strange moment uh, is more emphasized in the religion or the miracles of other cultures and faiths or something. Uh, but in the yeah. faith that I know, yes, a hundred percent, the greater the suffering, yeah. the greater the miracle. Yeah, um, when I'm saying miracle, I'm thinking explicitly of the Catholic, the Catholic, yeah, and yeah, not yeah. even the Christian miracle, right? But yes. the Catholic yes. miracle, a hundred percent. Yeah, we yeah we didn't really we sorry it seems impossible that we skipped something over but we did kind of skip over the fact that so he sees the sick girl and the kid yes. and abandons them yes and then later goes back and that is the moment and this is probably the best place to end the episode actually rather than his escape is that he goes back after he uh, has decided not to kill Syriaco so he has betrayed his guild again for a second time I don't know how many times you can betray your guild and still be a part of it and I think he's in the same place. And then he decides to actually use the claw. Infinite times. This is what I'm saying. Death mm-hmm. doesn't exist the way we think it does. Right. Right? The girl is doing vivamancy to him. Thecla is doing vivamancy to him. When he sees Syriaca and sees Thecla, that's vivamancy. When I say that vivamancy has changed how I read the book, it's because death doesn't exist anymore. And so any so the girl who is so it's, this is a like a, a wow cool robot meme, but for Vivimancy, but for Vivimancy, right? Um, uh, the the thing going over is just a random narrative development. And, and, uh, Austin Walker, wow cool Vivimancy. But, but I, I no, I think it's the other way, which is that I am now saying yeah, Vivimancy yeah, yeah. is my personal. Don't look for keys when you read text, but for me, the <laughs> obliteration of death and life as two different yeah, modes, yeah. and then the idea that you can act when you're dead means mm-hmm. that one, many people who are alive are already dead uh, because death is not a, a fundamentally different mode of being. Uh, yeah, Dorcas says it. We've all got it. We've we're all, all got infected it. We're with all, it we're all infected with death. Yeah, we were born with it from death. your mother. 
Caught it from your yep. mother. Exactly. Uh, two, the little girl who sees him and that and or that she, when he sees the little girl and sees her as a corpse and then goes back to her. To, like, yes, there's like the the regular way you can read this in terms of sentiment and emotion that he he sees in Syriaca that um, that she is like Thecla again. And this time he's going to do right by her. And hey, you know what? While I'm at it, I'm going to go. I'm going to go, you know, put my chest out and go save that little girl. And you know what? I'll raise the claw in front of all of those prisoners, none of whom will escape. Uh, um, maybe, maybe one or two will escape now. Who could say? But but he doesn't free them, but he does heal them. And you know what? That's that's where I'm at. Again, this is the kind of naive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's become. I'm going to become a good person now. Seventeen yeah, year old. Now they're thing strong enough to do. revolt. Right. Exactly. From the you know he didn't do anything about the chains, but uh, don't worry about that. Maybe some of them will be strong enough to break the chains. Um, yeah. But the other way of thinking about it is, for me, is that when you obliterate the difference between life and death, and you say that some people can call to you from death, then in order to get you to do things, then that is a new logic that's entered the way the narrative functions. Um, and I'm interested in that for many reasons, because we this has been a story about killing people. And if what you're doing when you kill or hurt people is actually bring them closer to the capacity for them to change what then happens in the future, because now they can vivamancy you, uh, that is a fun way to think about things like guilt as, it's a fun way to, to, to materialize the way guilt can drive you to make decisions, right? Mm-hmm. It's a it, magic as a metaphor for the way your represent your relationship to the dead or dying or suffering can then cause you to do things. And that, as someone who's an ex-Catholic, that does start to hit, you know. Mm-hmm. So something I'm just I, I none of this hit for me the first time I read this book or the, this part of the book, you know. I, yeah, vivomancy. That's sick. It's like a reverse necromancer. And now I'm reading it, and I'm like, oh, that's vivomancy. Guy who just saw vivomancy for the first time. <laughs> anyway. That, that's it. And that's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Um, I also, the first time I read this, was fully convinced that he was being chased. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Why I would you not think that? Because he's a little goofball. Yeah, no, I mean, I know now that we know, but I'm saying, like, if you're just reading it straight, yeah, yeah of course. And he is, as, as Michael said earlier, he is being chased just <laughs> by anyone who matters. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just by a, 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 an evil goblin. Mm-hmm. Um, two, two things that matter here. Um, one is that, you know, that he does heal these kids, and that kind of seems to, to be a big deal. The other one is that Thecla, uh, when he saves Syriaca, uh, Thecla kind of steps in a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Like Thecla's empathy for Syriaca. Um, this is on 65, 66 for me. Syriaca sighed and her dream fell from her. Among the landed armagers hereabout, he is one of the few who support the Archon. The others hope, she's talking about her husband, the others hope that by disobeying him as much as they dare and fomenting trouble among the eclectics, they can persuade the Autark to replace him. I've made my husband a laughingstock and by extension his friends in the Archon. Because Thecla was within me, I saw the country villa, half manor and half fort full of rooms that had scarcely changed in 200 years. I heard the tittering ladies and stamping hunters and the sound of the horn outside the windows and the deep barking of the boar hounds it was the world to which thecla had hoped to retreat and i felt pity for this woman who had been forced into that retreat when she had never known any wider sphere right so like 
Thecla is mm-hmm. in the mix here. And then it explicitly says that that counter, I tendered Syriaca's life in payment for Thecla's, right? Mm-hmm. So Thecla's memory and kind of attachment. So like, I understand exactly what you're saying, like everything you just said about in terms of vivimancy, where it drives the kind of actions of the plot in a very direct and kind of, as Gene Wolfe would say, metaphysical way. Right. Uh, and as, uh, as Syriaca would say, a metaphysical way. Um, but also they're like, um, Thecla, Thecla operates in Severian as emotion and as emotional register that Severian mm-hmm. just never had before. And that, that is pushing a lot of the decision-making here. And ultimately I think has to do with why he decides to not be a torturer anymore. Oh, a hundred percent. Right. Um, yeah. Well, it's, so when he's talking with, uh, Dorcas later and they're mm-hmm. having, uh, this is afterward. This is when she talks about having coughed up the lead. Uh, yeah. And they're having a very chilly interaction. And she is laying in the in room, just staring at the ceiling. Uh, and chilly he, because she's completely nude, right? <laughs> sure. For no reason that yeah. I can ascertain. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Well, it's like, oh, oh, baby, you're you're having a really hard day. Like, let's get you naked. Um, yeah, we skipped over the bit where he's like, I really wanted to sleep with her, but I knew it would be really shitty of me. I knew it would be weird. <laughs> but I did want to. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, sorry, sorry. (laughs) She was staring at the low ceiling and I had the feeling that there was another Severian there, the kind and evil, even noble Severian who existed only in Dorcas's mind. All of us, I suppose, when we think we are talking most intimately to someone else are actually addressing an image we have of the person to whom we believe we speak. Um, Right. So we, we talk a lot here about uh, symbols mm-hmm. and how they make us and what do other people's symbols do to us? Right. Like, I think there's a way yeah. that Severian is trying to suggest here that uh, Dorcas's belief that he could have been someone different. I mean, and he's not wrong. Right. I think Dorcas's belief that he could have been someone different ultimately does pay out in him making this choice to try to be someone different, along with mm-hmm. Thecla, yeah. who is existing as an image in his head in a very literal sense. Right. Uh, yeah. But it's also timed just such that uh, once the image in Dorcas's head is gone, that's when Severian becomes it. Right. This is the Vanity Fair, mm-hmm. like the the ironic timing yeah. You know, heartbreak of it. That's so good. It's so juicy. It's like, oh, he's finally he's finally believes the thing that she said about him moments too late. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, literally half a day ago, if he had come to come to this conclusion. Right. But also, could she have actually believed any of that if she was fully who she is? Or is that only the mm-hmm. perspective of someone not yet aware of the world in the way that she is today? You know, right. Yeah, someone who sees Severian kind of in a in a vacuum as opposed to Severian in his context. And explicitly, as part of this conversation, Dorcas says, I never saw you, do, you know, actually doing executions. And he says, well, I watched you up there. I saw you right. watching me do it. And she says, no, you didn't. <laughs> like, I, anytime you did it, I just walked away and covered my eyes. Yeah. Though there is uh, that other you, part of this exchange here, which is the, the inverse of that, right? Now that they've maybe switched places in terms of, like who is the voice of the cynicism and who is the voice mm-hmm. of the, the kind of naive and, and optimistic, you know, the, the world can be different perspective where she's like, Oh, uh, that guy, that guy kept following us, by the way, dude, uh, <laughs> your, your, your friend, she, she jokes yeah. at him, which is actually so sweet. <laughs> like that's such yeah. a, you know, there's a lot of words spent here towards the end of this where, where he starts to cry and, and realize like, Oh, that's my best friend. Like we've spent a lot of time together as friends beyond everything else. And there's this one little bit where, where she's like, uh, 
Oh, your your friend came came by. Uh, that's not funny to you, is it? I'm sorry. I just wanted to change the subject, referring referring to to Heather. Heather. Um, yeah. And there is a disconnect between what she sees that he likes, why he likes Severian, and why uh, why Severian sees it. Um, uh, which is that for her, she says that he like is it she says that he likes to see the pain or is this does the is it that is that severian says that he likes to see the pain yeah i'm looking here for the thing um oh right she sees she thinks of heather or heathor as having dead eyes and yes corpses yeah, yeah. eyes but for severian severian's like no that's not it at all his eyes dance the dull eyes that you see him with are they remind you of a corpse's eyes but his eyes dance. He's alive at seeing the suffering. Um, and that, I think, is really interesting, right? Is that, like, here is one of the rare times. Because, you know, again, in this conversation, Severian, again, Severian's constantly <laughs> missing stuff that that Dorcas is right about. Like, that is the relationship that they have, is that she has noticed something that he hasn't. Whether that is the cathedral <laughs> Um, that she sees first and then sees more of in the sky uh, or, you know, uh, what is the other one here? Oh, again, it's, it's that he doesn't understand the Jalenta stuff and what's actually happened there with the claw uh, again and again and again, he's missing stuff that she's picking up, but here he does have a different real perspective that we, I think are meant to trust, which is that he understands that Hedor is, is broken in a different way is, 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 Joyful at the at the pain that he sees a Severian cause and and made more alive by it, which is why he is off put. Not that he is corpse like, but that he is living in the suffering, mm-hmm. which I like. Notably, uh, Hathor is the only person who knows about the salamander. Oh right, she says, "Be careful, Severian. There is something. Hathor called it a salamander huh. loose in the city. Whatever it is, it burns its victims. How does Hathor know the name of the creature?" That's a great question. It is a great question. And also, we kind of move past this, but like the there is a lot of um, gesturing at the fact. I mean, it's clear the salamander is looking for Severian. The salamander is another natural, right? The salamander may also have been loosed on him, not literally yeah. a natural, but like loosed on him in the same way that mm-hmm. it was gestured at that they may have been uh, an assassin's mm-hmm. tools, you know, or, or or the tool, you know, something released on a hunt after him. Mm-hmm. So uh, here's here's another option. The salamander burned a bunch of random people the day before. <laughs> right. Sure. True. Just loose. Yeah. Just just around. Uh, I, uh, another thing that we uh, glossed over, but I just saw here that I want to point out is that, uh, you know, of all these things this is on 64. This is when he's about to kill Syriaca and decides not to. Um, uh, she's talking about. Um, what do you call it? That Cacogens are in the north. At mm-hmm. the Autarch's camp, she right. repeated. That's what Inhildus wrote. In Orithia, near the springs of Gaiol. But you must be careful if you go there to return the book. She said, too, that Cacogens had landed somewhere in the north. So the Pelerines are with the Autarch. Right. And Cacogens are also up there. Mm-hmm. I stared at her trying to determine whether she was lying. That's what Inhildus told me. I suppose they must have wished to avoid the mirrors at the House Absolute so they could escape the eyes of the Autarch. He's supposed to be their servitor, but sometime he, he, sometimes he acts as if they were his. I shook her. Are you joking with me? The Autarch serves them? 
<laughs> please, oh please, I dropped her. Everyone, Erebus, pardon me. And it, this is another loaded ellipses here, right? Or ellipsis here that the implication here is that Erebus and Abaya serve cacogens in the same way that the autark serves cacogens, which, uh, you know, the word cacogen is just a word essentially that's being used here as like foreigner. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, in, in the in the universe, as we know from the appendix, probably different groups could be different groups. But they also have uh, desires and goals outside mm -hmm. of uh, what the autark is doing. So it's just a thing to keep in the mix that I want to make sure that we're not losing track of because that's going to go away for a long while and we will come back to it at some point. So a thing worth marking here. Yeah. I'm, the other interesting detail that comes out there is she mentions like, well, I've never seen the autark, but I'm told that he, the viceroy of the new sun, is scarcely taller than I am. Do you think our proud exultance <laughs> would permit someone like that to rule if there weren't a thousand cannon behind him? So we, we, yeah. we've gotten like hints that there's some yeah. friction between the autark and the exultant class and here it gets kind of made pretty explicit. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, an orbital weapons platform up there. <laughs> there's like 15 master chiefs hanging out. Say, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. They're going to glass this planet, man. <laughs> yeah, they might. You got to be careful. I hate cacodons. this androgyne, but he commands so many master chiefs. <laughs> uh, uh that, you know, that's that, that that's really the problems of the future, mm -hmm. you know? Again in the in call very clear that that's actually the truth. That's how it worked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, other more, stuff we want to talk about. Here? One more quick salamander uh, yeah. thing. Um, the bit again, Severian not Severian having half the plot or like thinking he knows more than he than he does. Being like, I'm pretty sure it's looking for heat because that's what the nodules were. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. I was like, my man, I think it has enough heat. I think it's good on heat. Yeah. That was also the um, the Averns as well, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're right. It's like yeah. if it came from space, it's probably looking for heat. <laughs> Uh, Look, maybe I don't know. Yeah, I, you know what? Maybe Look, empiricism gets your ass sometimes, y'all. <laughs> sometimes it's insufficient to to the world around you, but sometimes it works. But two out of three ain't bad <laughs> uh -huh. in heat seeking. Um, but so yeah, so we he's on a new adventure to the north. Mm -hmm. Things we know that are in the north are the Pellerines, mm -hmm. which is where he's going. He wants to give him the claw back. Uh, and then he doesn't know what he's going to do. Maybe he's going to fight in the war. We know the war is in the north. Do we know what else is in the north? Just off the dome? Mountains. Yes, yeah, mountains. 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 Uh, mountains. There are jungles. Austin, there are jungles uh -huh. to the north at the belt of the world, right? We know that. Sure. Austin, do you, because uh, uh, Michael and I are poisoned by knowledge, do you have in your head the other major north thing that hasn't come up yet? No, no. I don't think I got to what you're looking at or what you're what you're talking about. No, I know. No, you haven't. But we, it's already oh, in the book we've oh, read. It's already in the it's, book. I, I'm not poisoned by knowledge in asking you the question. You already know about it. You just right. might have forgotten. Besides the Asians, besides the mm -hmm. yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, well, there's the what's her face theoretically is up there somewhere. Um, the 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 Cumaean? the Cumaeans up there, right? Well, maybe, the, but maybe like we the, don't know. The yeah. botanical gardens maybe brought her, but maybe uh -huh. she's still up there. Uh -huh. uh, no, I don't know. What is it, mm, Michael? What am I fishing for? Uh, I don't want to say what I'm thinking because I might be wrong. <laughs> it's like Diaturna. It's somewhere in the north. 
What's I don't right? know. What's yeah. that lake? What's the lake? I That's where uh, Baldanders and and oh, uh, of course, Doctor Talos are from. Right? Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. Of course. So of I just course. want to make sure you know that's a thing that we know, and it's been told yes. to us a billion times that they're from the north. Yes. Mm-hmm. They journey very far south to get money to rebuild their house, and that's where they were going. They were right. going back north, just in a different way. So yeah. it's a thing worth holding in your head that somewhere Lake Diaturn is up there, mm-hmm. which I don't know. Is it is it uh does it correlate to real lake? Do it, we know? It does. Uh okay. But, but I think wanna... we'll we'll save that discussion. Yeah, I mean that. it can correlate to a real lake. That's what's right. what I'll mm-hmm. say. But we'll save that discussion yeah. for when we can have it. <laughs> yeah, if if we get there. We might not. Okay. Well, uh that seems to be the episode to me. Um you can always go to patreon.com. Y'all didn't have any other Castle of the Otter stuff. Y'all y'all save that for future stuff. There, uh, there's a, there's two things that are that I didn't bring up that are both interesting and notable, and maybe we'll bring them up later when okay. they matter a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, Gene Wolfe says he believes explicitly in Lamarckism, and that it's compatible with Darwinism. So we'll figure that out later. <laughs> Will we? We don't need to explain. Will we that figure yet. out if it's compatible? Uh, no, we won't figure out if it's compatible. We'll figure out what the hell that has to do with this book. I think. Sure. <laughs> I sure. think we will. Um, but if you know what those terms mean, then that might be a little bit of a head scratcher, but he's very, uh, forceful about that. And he also says notably that, uh, he does not, uh, agree with Brian Aldous. I brought this up a couple episodes ago mm-hmm. about Thomas M. Dish. Um, he says that, uh, uh, science fiction does not begin with Frankenstein. It begins with the time machine. Good uh, argument is, there. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there's a real, you know, tension between those things. Um, now, why does he say that? I don't know. He does not provide. That's a what I meant. That's oh, what. Gotcha, yeah, gotcha. yeah, that's yeah, what. No, he's not. He does not argue that out. It's just a statement that's made, uh, kind of in passing. But it's one that maybe is worth thinking about. And also considering that his big masterwork here, you know, in terms of like the thing that sticks around about Gene Wolfe is Book of the New Sun. If if someone asks you what's the Gene Wolfe thing, you're, you're going to say this. The Time Machine is absolutely at least a third of it is a dying Earth story. Mm. Um, and a far and mm-hmm. a chunk of it that people often forget is a far, far future diner story, right? Um, like very far, like Heat Death of the Sun story. Um, so that that's worth worth thinking about too. So those things came up. Him and Thomas M. Dish, uh, Wolf says many times that they are good friends. Mm-hmm. After the review, you know that uh, pertaining to the reviews of uh, Shadow of the Torture, and he's very happy to get a good review from his good friend. And then we know that. Dish kind of trashed uh, Call of the Conciliator. Michael read from that last time. So that's an interesting kind of, you know, um, intramural thing going on within science fiction. Did he trash it? That's what I thought you said. No. I th- Didn't he say that he was too in love with uh, uh, Severian and it's too sword and sorcery? Am I making am I mean, I maybe. two things? I, I just remember, like, overall, like, compared to the people who really hated the book, he seemed pretty right. positive on, like, the right. idea of it. Gotcha. Got mm. Yeah. So maybe uh, trash is too strong, perhaps. Yeah. He had some critique. Yeah. Other than that, I don't think there's any other Castle of the Otter stuff to bring up here. Um, Michael, do you do you have anything off the dome? Uh, nothing that I I feel moved to add aside from that. Uh, I can tell you some fun stuff that that is not factual. You know, it's not like factual information. One is that Gene Wolfe hates college professors. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he goes off on a tirade about hating college professors, which is interesting. Um, and then he uh, especially since several of the people he mentions in this book are college professors. Mm. Um, and then the other one is that there is a chapter called these are 
are the jokes. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is a pretty fun chapter. I, I hate it. I like actually <laughs> well, hate it. I mean, I can let me read. Let me read for Austin what the thing is, please, and then we can please. get our opinions on it. Okay. These are the jokes. My son Roy has suggested this book requires more funny bits. Desperate, I have ventured to request that each of the characters in the Book of the New Sun supply me with one humorous story. Holy shit. And a few of them have been sufficiently cooperative to do it. Although we may not find them amusing, they should at least supply us with some additional insights into life on Earth. It is 10 pages of joke stories told in voice. Does Jonas have one? Probably. Yeah, it's such a it's such a Tumblr post. I was going to say the same thing. This is a Tumblr post. Uh Yes. So, yes. Right. Uh, A lot of them are about sex workers. I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the most important thing going on on Earth. Uh, Michael, you like this. You love. I mean, I don't love it. I just think it's very funny to see Gene Wolfe doing this uh, particular kind of. I mean, this he's is not, fanzine stuff. Y- yes, right. Like, yeah, oh yeah, 100%. like what if what if uh, Jolenta told a joke, right? Like, what if she got uh, uh, like it was open mic night on the dying earth, and everyone got up one after the other and told their own little joke? It's such a yeah. fascinating thing to just see happen to come from the author's pen, right? Yeah, the fandom would have exploded, right? The, this is like. So fun, like I or or today the my understanding of contemporary fandom that I've lived through would have you know this is like if um what's the what's the Hannibal guy's name again Brian Fuller Brian Fuller mm-hmm. if, like and Brian Fuller would do this you know right. you know uh, I mean Brian Fuller wrote a Hannibal and then a uh, Will Graham and then a whatever Larry Fishburne's character's name is I always forget Jack Crawford uh, Thank Jack you. Crawford mm-hmm. of course uh, shout outs. If they all had five minute stand up, you know, a, a, a quick five or whatever, um, that would be the fandom would go would go apeshit. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Gene Wolfe is like big in the fandom. He re- right. he name checks a bunch of fanzines in this book. Mm, you know, okay. he's he's in it. So yeah, this is him doing the bit. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. at the behest of his son Roy. Do you want me to read the Jonas joke? I mean, how long is it? Like a page. Yeah. <clears throat> as long as it's you know fit for consumption. Well, it's about sex workers. So, well, so yes, it must be. (laughs) Um, Okay. Once three sailors got shore leave on a planet where a woman was taking a pole. Oh, wait, maybe this one isn't about it. Sorry, I'm getting confused with another one. Once three sailors got shore leave on the planet where a woman was taking a pole. She and her clipboard stopped all three and asked what it was each wanted the most. The first was a big swaggering fellow with a red beard. Why? I've never thought about it, says he which is what the dog said when they asked why they shouldn't cut off his tail. But now that I do, why, it's power. Yes, power is what I seek. I'd like to be a captain than an admirable. Admirable? An admiral. That's me, sorry. A person of authority and a man of power. The second was a sleek, smooth-looking fellow. My dear lady, says he, I've not thought of it either. And that was what the diplomat said just before the war broke out. At least that was as well as they could recall afterward. Now that I have, I should say I would like to acquire more polish. It is my ambition. Have your clipboard write this down, please. To shine in the most polished society. The third was a handsome young fellow, and he said, I haven't thought about it any more than my friends here have, but I have tried to think while they were talking to you, and I believe that what I most desire is love. The woman laughed at that and said, Why, you're all three just robots. 
Open parentheses. You must understand that the word robot comes from the Czech Robotnik, which <laughs> designates a certain kind of laborer, and that there had been a strong Czech influence on this planet. Close parentheses. <laughs> Why, that's perfectly true, ma'am, says the first sailor, which is what the skipper told the strumpet when she asked if he was using his wooden leg. But how'd you know? I can see how you saw through me and the swab beside me, and for power and polish is things all robots look for. But the devil take me, which is what the Irishman said, that he didn't have time to say wife, if I see how you saw through our young shipmate here. Because I began life by looking for power and polish myself, said the woman, who was quick-witted, and wound up just as he has. Then she and the young sailor went off to have a drink, and if either one of them ever came back to the ship, why, well, I had never heard of it. That's Jonas for you. That story sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that story is is garbage. Gene, you fucking phoned it in. Yeah, dude. Well, of course, but, he like, it's, but it's full bit. of voice, his right? Little, I mean, it, his child came to him. His son came and said, "You got his son's some... in college. It's not a kid. His, his little boy. Like, his his roommates are boy. reading his books. He also talks about this. Yeah. He's like, oh my, 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 my son's roommates are passing around my books." <laughs> Yes, well, he's tra- doing his that. Son. He, he talks about going to Parents' Day at the University of Illinois. He's not eleven. <laughs> he's a little baby boy, and the he's little, baby, little boy baby boy said, no. "Dad, you got to put more jokes in your book instead of just torture." And then Gene, the dad, said, "All right, fine. I'll get. I'll show you some jokes." Are you telling a Jonas story now? What is going <laughs> on? What are you doing? Uh, like the leopard <laughs> told the iguana before he ate him. I got jokes. I got jokes. Actually, that one's, it's <laughs> a living. It's a, it's a living. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's all, all voice yeah. and it's uh-huh. fun. And I do like, I mean, there are some really great pieces here, which is that uh, she and her clipboard stop them all. And, and the clipboard writes things down by itself. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also they're all robots. They're all robots, <laughs> but so is Jonas. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I, I mean, yeah, they're all like that. And they all... Um, a bunch of characters you haven't uh, met yet do one, but Severian does one. Which Drott seems impossible, by the way. Right? We're so far in that it's like, oh, yeah, I still have to meet a bunch of characters. Yeah. Is is That's not normally what happens this deep in to a book, you know? Yeah, there's like six characters you haven't met yet. Yeah, until I stories, figured. It's so. fine. It's, you um, know. But the... Uh, the one I'm not going to read it because it is a little bit long, but Doctor Talos does one too, and it's oh, pretty good. That makes sense. Yeah, um, it it is a horrifying story. I mean, it's it's also it's a sex joke, but it's also like a uh oh, one of those. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's Castle of the Otter. We'll bring up some other stuff later. And like I said, I've been reading a bunch of interviews to kind of staple some stuff together uh, for later in the books. Um, but uh, between now and then, you can go to Patreon.com/slash Ranged Touch. To uh, support the show, get access to some bonus episodes. We've watched some movies. We're not watching any movies currently because the AMPGP needs to make a deal with the uh, Writers Guild and the actors. And as soon as they do that, we'll be back to watching movies like Krull and uh, Buckaroo Banzai and all the other movies from the 80s that we the 80s, not the 80, but the 80s that we plan to watch. Uh, in between now and then, though, we just did the Inkall, which is a comic book that uh, that we had a great time talking about, talking about Kill Wolfhead. And uh, and his allies, um, and the uh, and others, and others. Um, the Meta Baron, uh-huh. yeah, the Meta Baron, uh, <laughs> his child, the perfect androgyne, uh-huh. uh, and uh, others also. Uh-huh. 
And uh, we don't know what we're doing for the next one. We haven't really made a decision, um, but we will be making that decision soon. Um, and uh, yeah, so patreon.com oh, slash range touch. I thought we did yeah. make a decision. I thought we were reading we the Borges. We oh, are. we are reading the Borges. I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know what? We did read the Borges, and it's right here. I accidentally ordered two copies of the book. Oh, how oh. very Borgesian. So I'm going to read them both. I'm going to see if there's any difference. I was going to say that exact thing. <laughs> yes, you need to read both of them. Mm-hmm. I'll read both, and I'll see. I'm going to read them page by page and see if there's anything different. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. I'm sorry. I totally just blanked. We are reading Borges's book, Labyrinths. It's kind of a... Almost a greatest hits. Uh, a lot of the big heavy hitters. So if you've never read Borges before, uh, it is very approachable, and you're going to have read a big bunch of stories that people talk about. And we'll probably, you know, make a, a cut for each of us of our like top five, and we'll talk about those. I, I, I imagine we will not talk about every single story, but there's a lot. That'll be the next bonus yeah. episode. Actually, knowing us, we'll talk about every story twice somehow. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, we'll be doing that. It's on Patreon.com/slash/RangeTouch. So if you're interested in uh, kind of the background of Book of the New Sun. This is one of the places that's going to happen. And yeah, sure, probably in the next one, we'll just read all of Proust or something, you know, mm-hmm. an easy uh, thing to do. Wait a second. I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> no, we're going to do that. Well, that's a genre. Uh, I'm mean, looking forward to the Friends at the Table season. That's all like downstream of the Proust incident. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> um, the Proust we, incident's uh, a good name for a band, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> Double bill with the string cheese incident. Uh huh. That like aren't they're like an emo band, hardcore band maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, Cinderwell wrote and performed the theme song for the show. Sam Beck made the podcast start. Jordan Mallory edits and produces the show. Thanks to all those people for doing that work. And we will be back in two weeks with uh, more Book of the New Sun. I can I don't have it in front of me, uh, so I can't tell you what the shelf by genre schedule is until I filibuster long enough to look at it. It will be. Chapters uh, 13 through 24 of Sword of the Lictor. Um, that, it's the whole middle of the book. A lot is going to happen. Mm-hmm. There's some good stuff say, in here. <laughs> right. I, like I said last time, I think the piece that we read for Claw, uh, it, the end of Claw, you know, kind of the thing we talked about a bit ago, that's my second favorite chunk of these books. My favorite chunk of these books is the next thing we read. Chapters 13, 13 through 24 is just like all-timer after all-timer. It's like watching Babe Ruth, you know, just <laughs> yeah. knock him out of the park <laughs> yeah, over dude. and over again. Uh. And then we have to read Citadel, the Autark, which is like watching Babe Ruth, as, as Michael has put it before in the past, uh, watching Babe Ruth hit himself in the crotch with the bat on accident <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> Now, not everyone feels that way, but that's how I feel. I really don't care for Citadel of the Autark overwhelmingly, but what? maybe I'll have a different opinion because we all have different ways of approaching these uh, for this read-through. The epic highs and lows of Gene <laughs> yes. Wolfe baseball. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. <laughs> Borrowed, of course, from the playbook of Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, so 13 through 24 and uh, Sword of the Lictor, and I'm excited about it. That's a great, uh, it's going to be a great chunk. And uh, I think if you haven't read these books before, you're in for a treat. Amid these stacks so straight and tall, with tomes lined end to end, how are you to find your way? It's shelved by genre, friend. Hey, everybody. It's your producer, Jordan Mallory, here in the edit. Just wanted to hop in real quick and clarify something. Uh, The String Cheese Incident is a jam band. It is not an emo uh, operation. It is not one of these thrice-likes one of those. It is not a My Chemical Romance or similar. 
I uh, just wanted to, to clear that up. Apparently, the band's been active since 1993, and uh, they were formed or hail from, at minimum, a town in Colorado called Crested Butt. Thank you. 